Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the Phil Drysdale Show. This week, we have Keith Giles, and I am excited for this conversation. So let's dive in. Hey, hey. Hey, Phil. How you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Uh, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, doing good. Wonderful. It's good to have you on again. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm sorry to invite myself on. I'm... No, it's great. I, I'm always looking for a guest, especially ones that I've had already, and I have already know we get on like I had some fire and we have good chats. So, I mean, that, right. that sounds yeah, great to go. me. So yeah, so you um, you just finished up a, a new book then, is it is it out? Are we kind of releasing soon or? Yeah, well, of as of now, yeah, it's releasing the end uh, on the twenty fifth of August. So okay, cool. We can probably time this to kind of come out right about then, probably. Okay. Um, I'll try okay. and figure out what my podcasts are. I'm getting really close to the wire. You know, you always kind of try and keep oh, yeah. several ahead. It's just been too busy recently. I've just been mad, and so. Uh, I've been slowly chipping away, using more than I record because I do two a week. So I mean, it's oh wow, a lot to get through. Um, so you yeah, publish two a week. Two a week, yeah. Oh man, you're on you're at a crazy pace. Yeah, and they're they're big, long form as well. They're usually between an hour and a half, two and a half hours. Like they're they're long podcasts. Um, wow. So yeah, not messing around. That's great, man. People That's love really it. Good. People love it. So yeah, if people keep, if the audience it. keeps up with it, and they're they're. Um, I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense. You know, someone like Joe Rogan does like a four-hour podcast every day. Oh, he's like, like nonstop, isn't he? Like, that, that's pretty much his only gig, I think. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, to be fair, this is pretty much my only gig as well. I mean, <laughs> I, I've got a lot of like things in the fire, but at the end of the day, this is this is what I'm putting out. So um, yeah, you're I can put a couple yeah. out. It's, it's not bad. But yeah, I, I, I got like the biggest compliment ever. The other day I was on um, Jeff Turner's new podcast. He's about to release called Religionless. Um, oh, cool. You know Jeff Turner, right? You, you come across. I Jeff. know, I, yeah, I, I do. It's familiar, and I I don't know if I've talked to him or not, but okay, he's. Did he, awesome. did he have a podcast before that? No, he uh, he's just okay. launched one. Um, I mean, okay. he was he was kind of in that the grace movement, like lots of people kind of um, tracking with him for a long while, and he kind of he wrote the atheistic theist. Um, okay. And just he's awesome, honestly. Like, if you could have him on your show, you should have him on your show. He's he's okay. amazing. But yeah. Um, he just had me on his, or well, he's not releasing his show yet. He's trying to get loads ahead. Um, but he, he was like, he introduced me. He's like, and this is Phil. He's like the Joe Rogan of the deconstruction world. And I was like, there you go. Yes, <laughs> I made it. <laughs> I would take that as a yeah, compliment. Yeah. That's I, cool. I assumed it was, I said to him, like, I assume this is entirely because of my muscle mass and my addiction to DMT, right? You know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> nothing to do with my podcast, you know. Right. It's yeah, my knowledge yeah, I, of jujitsu and, you know. <laughs> yeah. I would definitely love to have those numbers, though. The um, Oh, my gosh. He's got crazy numbers. Unbelievable. What, what was it? Was it? Was it 60 million he sold for or 100 million? It was oh, yeah. Huge amount of money. Yeah, it's some um, crazy amount of money. Oh, I just mean like his followers, but it's something like, yeah, yeah like. But I mean, that, that says it, right? I mean, like when you're when you're selling to Spotify for exclusive and, and they're like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, you can still keep it free. You can do your thing. But we just want it to be on our platform. We'll give you 100 million. You're doing something okay. right. You know, okay. you've got some some uh, sway. But uh, yeah, it's mad. It's mad. Yeah. And Google screwed up there, not keeping them on YouTube, right? Oh yeah, and exactly. They really messed up. So yeah, I, I think they're gonna regret it. Yeah. He he was yeah he was a big deal for uh, YouTube, I reckon, and and that's opened up the whole world. Like Spotify are making a specific video section on Spotify just for Joe Rogan's show, but obviously more things will come to it. But right. uh, that 
is a dangerous thing that YouTube probably didn't want other people to think about creating is, you know, their own kind of micro platforms of right. video. Yeah, content. I will say like, see, I do watch Rogan, you know, now and again, I'll, 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 I'll watch it. Cause like I'm on, because I'm on YouTube mm. and because I do like him. So I'll look to see if he's got something new and if it looks interesting, like an interesting guest or topic, but I'm not on Spotify all the time. So I would yeah. have to make a point to go to Spotify to yeah. listen once he makes the ship. Um, and so the question I guess will be how many people are willing to do lose? that. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't use Spotify. I don't listen to music, so I don't use Spotify and I like listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube on the side every night, but it's, it's usually very specific guests. I like what I like yes. about Joe is he gets these kind of like fascinating people, you know, Oh, he's an yes. astrophysicist. He's, you know, yes. you know, she's a expert in sex or, you know, all these different things. I'm like, Oh, this is fascinating. Um, but then I also like his like extreme right wing people that I'm like, Oh, mm -hmm. I want to hear Joe just like draw out of them for three hours, like something. Cause <laughs> if they talk for three hours, I'm going to start to go, Oh, what else are they about? Like w w once we get deeper than all their kind of extreme talking points, yeah. who is this person? Like what's going right. on here? Yes. Um, I kind of like him for that, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I'll, I'll install Spotify just to kind of check out one every now and yeah, then. Yeah, me either. I'll, I'll just, we'll have to see, I guess. Yeah. Um, probably will. If he gets some good guests and some people start talking, oh, you need to check out this. I probably will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> because like you said, bottom line, that's, there's still the draw. Um, I really love the conversations he has, the guests he brings mm. on. Like, to be honest, I think um, this is kind of odd, but like probably, probably was one of the, podcast he did maybe about two years ago with one of these um quantum physicist guys that first kind of got my got me interested in quantum physics quantum mm. mechanics and all that like it was just so amazing and mind-blowing and based on that conversation then i start i did started digging on my own yeah uh, to look into a little bit more so you know i i really appreciate his podcast because you know he has great guests and he makes you think and it's all over the place it's everything yeah. from crazy conspiracy theory stuff oh my god like actual real science yeah to like so like you know musicians and artists and yeah. you know, just celebrities and just all kinds of, it's just across the board yeah and it's always interesting and, and he is the worst for it as well because he just accepts anything his yeah. guests say maybe he occasionally be like oh come on you can't mean that but on the whole he's just like okay he just kind of gives them a soft yeah okay okay and yeah keeps them going and like it is really funny watching some of these people and you're like Joe, last week you had an expert in this field detail to you why this isn't true. Now you've got some random person telling you something and you're like, oh, wow, fascinating. That's great. Right. Wow, so interesting. And I'm like, did you forget last week or do you just not? No, no, I didn't. I, I, <laughs> see, I think that's what you have to do to be a good interviewer. I you think, do. Um, you do. Because he doesn't want to debate the person. No. You know what I mean? I think he just wants to let them talk. And, and I have seen him once in a while go, but you know, I had someone on. I had somebody on a couple of weeks ago who wrote a book or did this and said that. What do you think about that? But he mm. never does it to say, and that's why you're gotcha. wrong. Yeah. Yeah. He'll just say, so what do you think about what they're saying? And then yeah. let them let them go respond to that, but not to him. Yeah. And then I think that's you know that's probably wise. So. Yeah. No, I, that's why I try and do a mic because I've had people on. I mean, I have a whole spectrum of people on, and and realistically i agree with the x amount of percent of what they have sure. to say and a lot of time i have people on i don't even agree with what they have to say but i'm like oh this will be helpful and interesting for certain sure. people within my audience or whatever sure. um so yeah and you do you kind of go well i'm not here to have a fight i'm here to have them explain where they're coming from maybe pro poke and you know provoke a yeah. little bit and ask draw out better uh, 
perspectives or whatever but yeah no he's he's good at it he's good um, yeah but yeah well, well the, the reason why I, I i approached you about having a conversation on this topic not it wasn't honestly because of my book it was just because um i was on twitter and somebody it wasn't you i think someone else shared a clip of you oh yeah and you were right. saying something that i thought was just awesome and actually if you can repeat it <laughs> for this conversation it would be great because okay. it was so if good. If you can remember what it was, okay, tell it me, was, I'll say it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Okay, I'll just remind you. I, hopefully you remember what it was. You were talking about how, on the one hand, the way the Pharisees, why, basically why the Pharisees missed Jesus as the Messiah, because they were looking for a particular type right. of Messiah. And, and so there were three things they were looking for. And then you, you explained that, and then you just kind of like flipped it over to where we are today and mm. the kind of Messiah we're looking for today. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I do. So I feel like, I think this is something that has been rattling around my head for about 10 years or so, but I think it was Andre Robb. You, are you familiar with Andre? I think oh, I love was, him. Yeah, I've talked yeah, to him a couple of times. Yeah, yeah oh, I love Andre. We, we always have him stay with us when, we, when he's in the UK. And honestly, oh, cool. he's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and uh, I think it was him that, that said this originally in some fashion, shape, form. So it's not mine, or if it has become mine, it was largely stolen from Inspired. him, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure. Um, and it might not, maybe it was someone else. I've just crossed my wires. Maybe it was Francois de Toine. I'm just thinking of a South African person, but I'm pretty right. sure it was um, Andre. But he, he, he basically put forward this idea that, um, yeah, so there's basically when Jesus shows up to the Pharisees, the Pharisees are the experts. They're the people that know it all. They're the lay people that are really serious about their Bibles and their scriptures and their tradition. And they know what the Messiah is going to be, and he's going to give them three things. He's going to reward them for being the good good boys and girls for doing their thing. Well, just boys in those days, right? But the yeah. good people, you know, they did the right things, so God will bless them and reward them. And then he's going to punish all the people that didn't. He's going to punish them. He's going to show them you were wrong. You weren't the powerful ones. You weren't the right ones. You, God wasn't on your side. Your gods were false. And he's going to smash it in their face and rub their face in it. And then he's going to ultimately restore this an amazing, powerful Israel to power. And they'll rule over everything. And they'll be given power and authority and, and proven to be right. And all the other people in the world will be like put in their place and uh, punished or wiped out or whatever it might be. Um, and what's fascinating is they were really pissed off that Jesus shows up, right? And does like basically none of that. He's like, Hey, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, okay, so you want to reward us? And he's like, no, you're the worst of the lot of them. You have a lot to figure out. Um, okay. So you're at least going to tell off all these like Samaritans and tax collectors. And No, no, I, I'm good with them. The prostitutes, the tax collectors. Awesome. Love those guys. They are rough around the edges, but we'll get there. Okay. Well, at least you're going to restore the nation of Israel. No, no, no. I don't really care about nations. That's irrelevant to me. Yeah. What? kill this guy right but what's fascinating yeah. is if we look at the church today right the, the vast majority of um conventional christianity falls into exactly the same trope right and so they are looking for a god who is a messiah a jesus that's coming back and when he comes back he's going to reward them for being the right type of people the the people that had said the prayer or were obedient servants good christians right and then um he will punish everyone else for being wrong for being evil send them to hell or whatever give them some tribulation or whatever it might be some left behind stuff who knows <laughs> um 
And then he will create the ultimate, you know, this new Jerusalem, the new power, rise to power, that all the Christians will rule and reign and serve, and everyone else will be humbled and punished forever and shown, put in their place, all the powers of the world, all those people that were persecuting the Christians and not letting them pray in schools and all that, they'll be punished and notched down, and we will be a powerful, amazing. And I am describing conventional Christianity. That's right. We, we have become what the Pharisees were. And we, we expect Jesus and his second coming to be a different Jesus than his first. And, yeah, exactly. and it's so true. Uh, yeah. and, and again, I, I'm pretty sure I stole that from Andre Rue on some level, at least it created my thinking in that. Uh, he, he probably yeah. laid it out better than me as well. I've probably butchered it and, and made it slightly yeah. worse. <laughs> no, the funny thing is, I think most, most evangelical Christians who hold that view that you just described, and even if you pointed it out to them, would go, yeah, yeah. They would like they wouldn't disagree with anything you just said. That's right. The Pharisees were wrong about it, but we're not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like we're not wrong now because we think the same thing. Like they just they just had it out of order. They thought it was going to be that way the first time, and it wasn't. But it's definitely going to be that way the sec this time. Like, right. Yeah. But, but the the core thing is that they're expecting, and I think a lot of Christians have noticed this. Right. They're expecting Jesus to be different almost radically different than he was the person mm. that he was when he came the first time like okay the first time he came he was a, he was the good shepherd and he came on a donkey and he washed feet and he you know turned the other cheek but you know what i mean but now he's coming back on a white stallion with a sword in his mouth and he's gonna kick some ass and and then and they're totally fine with that right they absolutely embrace that and they don't see any any disconnect to that way of thinking, you know. Yeah. But you're exactly right. I mean, whether that's you or Andre or yeah, or someone else. Someone I mean, probably it, inspired it before then, even who knows. Yeah. But what do you what do you think that's why? Why do you think we do it? Because I mean, I I did it. I, I did it for a oh, long yeah, time. That too. was my concept of the Jesus that was coming back, and I looked forward to. I remember like as a 16 year old, my first ever job, sitting in my office reading. Um, the Left Behind book and my boss coming in and me being like, oh crap, stick that down. Like, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But I was, I was into it. Like I remember vividly like, plowing through Left Behind books. There was just endless books, wasn't it? I don't know how many, like 40 part book series or oh, something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they Amazing. milked that in, thing, right? Yeah, the end times take forever. It's only supposed oh to be God. like three and a half years. And I it, felt like I was living it in real time, you know? <laughs> it's endless. Like when does when the end times end? Yeah. Like yeah. my gosh, there's, it's, yeah, and those guys on. with their like one plane still managed to keep the carbon footprint about the same. Like those guys That's just flew nonstop. They were like, it was insane. Yeah. So here's, you know, here's what I think is fascinating about, and, and I want to have this conversation, but there's so many different part, facets of it, I think, to explore. But so here's what I think that was fascinating about sort of like the Tim LaHaye's, or if you go back to like Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth. Yeah. Or even recently, like John Hagee and some other guys who have, you know, the, the blood moons and all the, so any, any of these guys who write books about Bible prophecy and, uh, you know, they've, they've figured it out. They've cracked the code. They understand what it means. And we're so close. The end times are so close. Jesus is coming back any day now in our lifetime. We fully expect to see Jesus. I mean, we, they, we've been saying this for over a hundred years now, right? And um, we'll talk about why that is, but um but here's what I find really fascinating. Um, what all of those guys have in common, I mean, 100%, what they all have in common is they are 100% wrong 100% of the time. Yeah. They're all wrong. They've all been absolutely wrong. I used to work at a Christian bookstore in, uh, during the, uh, the first Iraq war, 
we probably had like five different books about how Saddam Hussein was the Antichrist and uh, Iraq was modern day Babylon and all these scriptures that, that fulfilled and proved, you know, that, oh, according to Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel or blah, 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 this fits perfectly, overlays like a perfect love. Mm-hmm. And, and we're in the end times, man. You know, this is the end. Um, and here's the thing, like I said, 100% of the time, they're all wrong. And right. here's what blows my mind, Phil. In spite of the fact that what they have in common is they're always wrong, it doesn't seem to hurt their popularity. Not at any all, one right? Of those guys, no, any one of those guys today could put out a brand new book with new revelation, with a brand new set of reasons and rationales, and they would sell 100 million copies. Dude, I'd right? go even further. They could put out the same book and just do a find and replace on the people or nations or something, and, and you'd basically be good. And some of them, that's kind of what they do. Yeah, that's yeah. kind of what they do. It's Gorbachev. Yeah. No, it's Saddam Hussein. No, it's, you know, you just swap out the names and, and yeah. the scriptures stay the same, but it's, it's the... There's- the, the person that it maps to, it changes, right? Yeah, it's there's a weird dynamic because I my background is charismatic Christianity. Well, I have so many backgrounds. <laughs> but at one point, I was very much in the charismatic movement. And uh, there's this weird dynamic where it just isn't held for accountability. Like, I don't mean like, you know, go back to the Old Testament and stone a prophet he's not right or any of that kind of crazy stuff. Um, but I just mean like when a prophet gets up and says, God told me this president will serve as the president this year. And then they tell all their congregation to vote for him and then they don't he doesn't get in right and yeah. you go yeah well when he gets up the next four years later and goes god told me to vote this way and everyone goes okay cool do they not go wait you were wrong no. last time you didn't even apologize you didn't even say hey i misheard i must have got it wrong you know there was none of that same yeah. deal with the blood moons right i, I didn't oh, hear yeah. a single apology from Hagee from uh, nope. toronto got into it you know i mean a, a lot of like big movements i i, I was at a meeting in, in uh, Ireland's with uh, John Arnold literally got on the stage and said next year the end of the world will be here because that will be the final blood moon and he literally and I was like I'm sitting there I'm like you did not just say that John you did not literally I've heard you say kind of some of the stuff that we've said before like where yeah. they go look we don't do the end of the world prophecies that's you know it's just not a good idea it's been proven again and again we're not looking at that and then here he is he really believed it you know so and oh, hats yes. off to him I think this, it's okay if you really believe something like that but to not then go, oh, I missed it, guys. You know, it's just one thing to really yeah, feel yeah. you heard God say something and say it to people. That's that's one thing. It's, you're going out on a limb. But to never yeah. go, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I apologize. And then never to be served any scrutiny the next time you say exactly the same thing. It's a well, part weird of it, yeah, dynamic. Part, part, I think part of the reason, Phil, is that, again, because the people don't hold accountable these leaders or these prophets that or whoever – pastors, authors, whoever they happen to be, you know, because we just, we don't demand any kind of apology. We don't say, listen, we're not listening to you ever again because you lied to us about this blood moon thing. And, you know, and until you explain yourself, we're not going to listen to you again. No, we don't act that way. We're like, what else you got? What else? Give me something else. Give me, give me. We're like addicts, you know, like, come on, man. I need my, I need a fix. I need my thing. And we don't care that that crazy story you told us was complete and utter nonsense mm. we're, we're just hungry and ready whatever you know are, are, are wide open for the next crazy thing yeah. you're going to tell us and it's that um we just seem to have this insatiable hunger this endless you know appetite for um you know tell us the future tell us what's going to happen and it doesn't even matter if you're wrong 100 percent of the time <laughs> yeah 
tell us something else. You know, we just love those stories. That we're like little kids. They're like, yeah, daddy, tell me that story again. Um, mm. Okay. But, um, but I want to, I want to, I want to, if I can just go into a little bit about some things I, when I, cause I did just write a book about this. Yeah. Yeah. Please. And, um, wanting to try to provide some kind of historical background for, for Christians. Like if you're like you and if someone like you or me observing this phenomenon and maybe we did fall for it for a while. Um, I've, by the way, I've got a copy. I still have a copy of the book, 88 reasons why Jesus will return in 1988. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things. So if you're somebody who's sort of like, yeah, I used to believe that stuff. I fell for it a couple of times, maybe. Um, but now I've gotten to the point where I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm so tired of this. But I still don't understand why we keep telling this story, why we keep falling for it. And see, I think you have to take a step back and say, well, what about, you know, these, these prophecies are based on scriptures. So is it just that no one understands these scriptures? Because it seems like these Bible prophecy experts don't seem to really understand these prophecies because they keep sure. um, getting it wrong. So, you know, in my book, what I tried to do was provide some historical, you know, framework for where we, where all this kind of stuff comes from. Mm. And by the way, it's very recent. This is not a, this is not a phenomenon that goes back 2000 years. Christians weren't acting this way or falling for end times, rapture, second coming scenarios for, mm. you know, in the, in the first century or the third century or, you know, or even the 1500s so sure. uh, they thought jesus really, was coming back right on, on some they level thought he was coming back but they didn't they didn't buy into this narrative that they were just always looking at current events and trying to prove or map something to this bible verse over here right as yeah. if the bible verse was talking about you know current events mm. and so let me explain that a little bit so i mean yes early christians did believe in, a, in the second coming, they believed that Christ was going to return. That's actually something that's even mentioned in some of the early creeds, um, the, the belief that Christ would return. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't the narrative that we have commonly accepted as normal or Christian. Mm. So uh, this comes, it actually came from a guy named John Nelson Darby um, in around 1830. So that's pretty recent. Uh, around 1830, Darby um, popularized a view, dispensationalism, and specifically a dispensationalist view that took an end times rapture futurist view mm. of these prophecies in the scripture, specifically Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, and of course the book of Revelations. Mm. And so, so we have to first understand that as a point of reference that before 1830, the average Christian did not connect the dots between Daniel and Matthew and Revelation and Isaiah and the way we do today. That, right. that was a brand new thing that Darby introduced. Yeah. And uh, did he not get, like, I vaguely remember, uh, and I'm not an expert in the end times at all, uh, rapture, all that kind of good stuff. Um, but from my understanding, he got a lot of that from someone that was in a meeting in the Hebrides revival where a young yes. girl just gave some prophecy about it. Right. And that, that's, that's it. Like that's, you, if you, you trace got it. it back and like, yeah. there's, there's not much to it. It's just some girl going, oh, I just had a vision or, you know, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. it's pretty profound. Let me talk about uh, prophets not being held accountable. Right. If, if that right. one had been, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, you're a lot right. of problems. 
You know, you know more than you think you do. Yeah. So, okay. so if you go and you, you research Darby and you try to figure out, okay, so where did Darby come up with it? Yeah. There was a young girl at a, uh, like a, like a, uh, it was actually a, um, a conference on like spiritual gifts or something. Okay. It, it was in England somewhere pretty obscure. And this young girl had this vision um, and she said that there were going to be something like two raptures, one like very, very soon. And one maybe in like 30 or 40 years in the, from there, but there were going to be two quick raptures um, and they were going to come really soon and blah, blah, blah. And so it caused a lot of stir at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, Darby wasn't present at the conference, but he heard about it afterwards because it made a sure. lot of, you know, made a lot of people talk. Well, because Christians and, love that, right? <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> we don't change, and, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. And apparently uh, he, uh, there's evidence that he met with her and listened to her story. And, um, and then sort of took elements of her prophecy. And then that's when he kind of went to the scriptures and started trying to make it fit mm. with some prophetic scriptures, right? And, and also something about the same time that happened, and this is really fascinating, around about the same time, Darby fell off of his horse and hit his head. Mm. And I, was, I think it was in the hospital, like almost like a semi-coma for a couple of days. And he says that after he fell off his horse and hit his head, um, he suddenly understood all these things. So, so take this with a grain of salt. Like this weird girl at a conference has a, has this vision, and and he falls off his horse, hits his head, and then has a knock on the head and goes, "Now I understand." Wow. So it's a bit like Paul, guys, really, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes. Falls off a donkey, goes, "Oh, I figured it out." <laughs> I figured it out. And um, and so so this is kind of for the first time he does this. So now here's again what is weird, right? We can stop and think about this. So like before 1830, this wasn't a common thing. And in fact, when Darby first introduced these ideas, um, people called him uh, crazy and he was a heretic and he was nuts and they didn't, they didn't accept what he said. And he didn't find a foothold, a big foothold in, in England mm. uh, initially. It was not until he came to America and started preaching at different different churches there, and then he found an audience. So this appears to be a particularly American thing. We're like, we're like oh, this sounds so cool. Tell us more, right? <laughs> and so they kind of start eating it up, and um, and then he gets really well. I should say, um, what's also I think fascinating in the in the chronology of what happened, um, there were some pretty prominent American Christian teachers, Bible teachers, and, and uh, preachers who heard Darby's story version of the end time mm. rapture thing. And they said, Hey, no time out. This guy, why are you guys listening to him? And one of those guys was Charles Spurgeon. Mm, uh, and in fact, Charles Spurgeon published a very lengthy article, at least one, but maybe more than one, um, where he condemned Darby, tried to uh, illustrate like the errors and the mistakes and the, Hey guys, don't listen to this guy. He's a kook. Um, so there were there were several people that did try to sort of sound the alarm that guys calm down we this isn't something we should take seriously yeah um, but it became very very popular so what's very interesting about this too is I don't know if you know Ben Witherington is you've heard of Ben Witherington yeah yeah okay he's a very respected you know Bible teacher New Testament mm. um, scholar and um, I was watching uh, an interview with him where he was talking about this phenomenon. And he said, you know, what's fascinating about dispensationalism in the early days is that it was a popular movement, meaning the average layperson really ate it up. They loved it. They couldn't mm. get it. Tell me more. Tell me more. Right. But it wasn't a scholarly movement. And so this is literally what happened. 
and this is according to Ben Witherington, that because it became more and more popular, Christian teachers and leaders started saying, you know, it would be great. It'd be great if we had some sort of scholarship to back up this view that's really popular. And so that's where Dallas Theological Seminary and, and later on Talbot and Viola and some other Christian seminaries and schools um, were created. They were created to provide scholarship to justify a belief that people already believed. It's not the other way around wow. where the scholarship came first and people studied it and, and, and said, oh my gosh, we've seen this. And then let's go now and teach it to people. It was mm -hmm. backwards. The people already swallowed it and believed it. And then it was like, boy, I wish we had some scholarship to make this thing seem a little more legitimate. I know what, let's start a seminary. Okay. <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of what happened. And so, and that is what happened. And between that and the Schofield Reference Bible. Right. Um, I think actually the Schofield Reference Bible came ahead of that, where Schofield really thought that Darby was onto something and started incorporating some of Darby's teachings and notes into his study guide notes in his Bible. Right. And it was reference. one of the first um, study guide Bibles ever as well, right? Which is why, yes. I mean, you're looking at, I know growing up as a Christian, right? When I had my Bible, it was like, you know, the new living applied Bible or whatever. I can't remember what it was called, but it's something like that. Everyone had one. Um, and like half of the Bible is just basically explaining to you what those Bible verses mean. And when yes. you're reading and you don't really have any idea what the heck half this Bible is about, and you're like, well, I just killed everyone. Oh, and then you just, you immediately you jump down, read yeah. what the expert said and go, oh, okay, cool. I feel a bit better. Right. But you yeah. can open up a, uh, I, I, I've got a free um, ESV from like um, the, the reformed movement. I can't remember what it's yes. called, but it's like the, the reformed ESV or whatever. And it's the same. And you look at the, the bottom half of that and you read the bottom half of the average charismatic uh, commentary, you know, the yes. study guide Bible, or you read the bottom half of the, the purity study Bible, right? There's a purity yes. study Bible, how on yes. earth they managed to find purity on like, you know, every page is amazing, but um, <laughs> they figured it out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you look at those and they're going to tell you completely different things. Yes. Um, so if you're one of the first to the, to the, the printing press with one of those, you have such incredible power because people right. are just kind of going to hook, line and sinker, except what yes. you say. Yeah, um, and, that, and that's that awesome. is kind of what happened. So because it just became um, just I guess because of the volume, like so many Christians, so many study Bibles. And now there were seminaries being you know spinning out, and these seminaries now are kicking out pastors who are now being hired uh, and are standing right. in the pulpits, and now they're teaching from this perspective. And so it just slowly became not dispensationalism; it just became Christianity. Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Like, this is just the way it is. And no one ever, no one ever does the compare and contrast for you and says, now this is one view and this is the view we hold. And we think it makes more sense. But right. just so you know, there's other views and here's what they are. Like, no, yeah. they don't want you to, don't even, we don't want you to know about these other views. Yeah. And we sure don't want to tell you that our view is something that, you know, is about as old as Mormonism. Because jo Joseph Smith in the same year <laughs> uh, started Mormonism in 1830. So wow. you think of it that way. This view of the end times is, is as old or as new as, as something like Mormonism. So it's a right. very recent development. And it's just very yeah. rapidly become, especially in the West, um, the only way to read, certainly to read prophetic yeah. scriptures like this. Yeah. I remember as a, uh, you know, growing up in the church and I, I grew up in um, kind of evangelical Baptist, charismatic brethren. I was in quite a few different movements growing up through my first kind of 20, 25 years. Um, 
every single church would lay out, here's your options with the end times. Nobody really knows. It's quite complex. Fair play to them. They kind of put that across and they said, it's probably, it's one of these three views and you have to kind of figure out what you think. It's either post-trip, mid-trip or pre-trip. And then you figure out those, one of those three and everyone would be like, wow, I'm post and you're pre, but that's okay. We're, We're fine. And it's only when I started reading about this myself, and again, I've not studied it extensively because largely I'm just like, this is an area of study that nobody knows what the hell they're talking about half the time anyway. And we're all guessing anyway. Um, But so it never really bothered me that much. Um, But when I looked at it, just a cursory glance, I was like, holy crap, those three views are one view. There are like some nuances within one view of a great many different views of which this is the newest one. Yes. There's not really any newer views than this, particularly. Yeah. And all the other views have predated it substantially. Yes. Um, I just blew my mind that nobody had told me this. I, I felt right. like so hard done by, you know, I was like, come on, yeah. are you kidding me? You pretended there were some choices. It's like the kids, right? You take the kids to the park and you can go, you can play on this, this, and this, and you don't know that there's a freaking zoo next door. So, you know, right. you're like, you kidding? You gave right. me a choice, but I didn't know the zoo was a choice. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Well, see, and you're ahead of the game on that, Phil, if you figured that part out, because a lot of Christians haven't figured that out. Well, it took out. me a long time. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they do. They're not aware of the fact that the whether it's pre or mid or post tribulation, that the view of an end times tribulation rapture, that that's Darby's, you know, that was his jam. Mm. That's what he came up with was this, the, the whole narrative, like it's really, cause most people, when you say dispensationalism, they're like, well, that sounds weird. Tell me more. I've never heard of dispensationalism. You don't know it by that name. No. But if I just tell you this story, here's the story. Um, there's going to be this guy who shows up at the end and near the end, the end times. And he's going to be, everyone's going to think he's the greatest thing. They're going to think he's the greatest leader and um, they're all going to trust him. And, and uh, he's going to make a treaty with Israel, a peace treaty, like a world peace treaty. And, um, but then after like three and a half years, he's going to break that treaty. And suddenly we're going to realize, oh, holy crap, this guy is the antichrist. And he's going to put Christians in these concentration camps. And he's going to make everyone take this mark of the beast on their forehead or their hand. And he's going to demand that you worship him. Oh, and there's going to be the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt because it has to be so that he can go in and stop the daily sacrifice, which has to get started again. So we're mm-hmm. waiting for that to happen. So, but once the temple gets rebuilt in Jerusalem, and then the the Jewish priests are continuing the daily sacrifice again, then he'll jump in, stop the daily sacrifice, declare himself to be God, demand himself to be worshipped, and then there's going to be this tribulation period, and maybe there's a rapture before that of Christians, or maybe it's during the tribulation, or maybe it's after the tribulation, but one way or the other. And that's this choice you're saying we have. Mm. And, uh, and one, the rapture happens either before, during, or after that tribulation. But then at the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back and there's a trumpet. And then there's this massive battle that's awesome. And, uh, and then Christians win. And, you know, th- those that took the mark of the beast are, are destroyed or thrown into the lake of fire. And then everything's happy again the end. So if any of that story you've ever been told and you believe that that is what the Bible teaches, you believe dispensations. Mm. That whole story is made up. That is not what the Bible teaches. That's not what, that's not what Daniel says. That's not what Jesus says in all the discourse. That's not even what the book of Revelation is talking about. It's a, it's a story that literally only works if I first tell you that story. First, mm. I have to tell you that story. And then you go, whoa. And then 
after I told you the story, I go, now let's look at this verse over here in Daniel. See, this verse in Daniel proves that part of the story. Now let's jump over here to Matthew 24. And this right here, this verse, that proves this other part of the story. Now let's mm. jump over here to get to, you know, Revelation. And let's read these verses. And that proves this other part of the story. Or First or Thessalonians or whatever. So you end up jumping to all kinds of different places in the Bible to prove the story that I told you. Right. But again, it took 1,830 years for anybody to come up with that story. And until I tell you the story and then try to prove it from the Bible, if you just read the Bible, you You'd wouldn't come up with, with that story. story. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think, the problem with it. But mm -hmm. now that you've been told that story, this is one of the, I think, one of the most difficult things to overcome is it's a hell of a story. I mean, mm. dude, if you film this, if you film that story, it's a Jerry Bruckheimer, you know, Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Wars, the, you know, multi-million dollar budget, amazing special effects. It's got 12 headed dragons with nine eyes and three horns flying out of bottomless pits. It's got these, you know, horses with the tails of scorpions that are stinging people and hailstones that, that are hundred pounds and fire from the sky and Oh my gosh, it's like a freaking amazing story. It's so yeah. cool. Yeah. It's a cool story. So if I tell you and convince you, you know that whole story? It's nonsense. And now I take that away from you. The, the problem is the story that I give you to replace that, nothing will ever compare to that story. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we love that story. It's so cool. And if I take that away and I tell you that's not real and I tell you what it actually is, um, it's, I'll tell you one thing, it's just not going to be as amazing and cool as that story, right? It's not yeah. going to make a good movie. I just don't think it, it doesn't feed our, um, our desires. It's a bit like when we talk about hell and we like compare something like eternal conscious torment with, um, or even annihilationism with uh, kind of some sort of universal reconciliation. Like on one, on one level, you look at that and you go, well, everyone would want universal reconciliation, right? But then you actually go, well, okay, let's look at the heart of people and what they desire actually deep down we all really 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 want to be able to say i get rewarded for my good stuff and i overcame my bad stuff and i'm the hero and i'm wonderful and i get blessed and want you know like good stuff. And, and much deeper than that i want to see people that wronged me and did evil in this world get what they deserve and i think you know with that i think that's one of those challenges when you look at something like hell it plays into those dynamics of like i i, I need these elements to be fulfilled this this retributive uh, uh justice this punitive justice to be filled and i think our end times feeds into that heavily where yes. we're looking for a story a bit like the pharisees we're looking for a story that feeds that that desire that need for i want to be praised for trying do you have any idea i have no doubt that the pharisees were working their freaking asses off right no question yes. right they and they really were passionate people these were lay people they like gave up their jobs and did this for free. You know, they really worked their butts off to try and um, become these holy people. The whole point was they were like the Sanhedrin are just half-assed priests. And we actually, it's like, you know, imagine like um, half your church, when I mean, not half, like 10% of your church were like, we think the, the pastors are just half-assed. They don't really care. They're not really passionate. We're going to really do what the Bible says. And we're going to serve people and we're going to teach people and we're going to equip people and we're going to disciple people. And we're going to quit our jobs and do this full-time. And we're just going to really do it. You'd be like, Oh, dang, hats off to that guy. He really believes this. Yeah, hey, yeah. That's who the Pharisees were, right? And so yes. no wonder they're like, I better get some kind of reward out of this, right? I'm kind of mm -hmm. on some level, I'm expecting God to go, Good job, Dave, you know, or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Maybe a more uh, I guess David is a Jewish name. I was like more Jewish name than Dave, but David works. Right. <laughs> um yeah. 
but you know on some level that's what we're looking for we want that kind of like pat on the back we want god to approve of us and, and on some level i think a lot of us um it's hard for us not to operate out of that desire for validation for acceptance yeah. for reward and then the flip side of like and i really want to see all those people that didn't try right a bit like jonah uh, you know any of yeah. these kind of prophets but like you know going i i don't want the bad guys to get forgiven i want the bad guys yeah. to burn right i mean yes. i tried hard my guys tried hard these guys aren't trying don't, what do you mean if they say sorry they'll be fine i don't yeah. what do you mean i want them to yeah. burn <laughs> Yeah, so I I, um, I think you nailed that, that. You're exactly right on that, Phil. And I think you're right. It's similar to the view of uh, reconciliation and, and eternal torment as it is um, on the end times story. Because what you just described, uh, I, I run into it all the time. So I teach a course uh, through BeADisciple.com based on my book, Jesus Undefeated. And it's about the three views of hell. And, um, and I, I, I just finished up the class last week. Uh, it was a three-week class, but as we're finishing up the class, uh, at the end of the course, I ask everybody, all the students, to sort of write a summary of, you know, what they've learned. And they don't have to agree with me. I just want to know their reaction now that they've learned some new things. And, um, and I got a couple of people. That's their problem. The, the ones who have a problem with reconciliation, to, I mean, I'm just going to paraphrase what one of them actually said, which is just what you just said. I like the idea of reconciliation, but I'm still not comfortable with the idea that it seems like God isn't dealing with evil. And I really need God to deal with evil. It seems like someone should pay for all the evil. And I'm like, uh, now I didn't say this to her, but, but I, if we were having a conversation and, and someone said that to me, I would say, okay, uh, have you committed evil? Have you done some evil? Yeah. So who do you think should pay for that? So you're saying you, you, you really, really want someone to pay for that. And so you're saying, that in your what you'd be more comfortable with is uh because evil has been done and god needs to deal with that evil that you really hope that god's gonna really take it out of you and punish mm. you for the evil you've done oh no no that's not what they mean not me don't right. like jeffrey dahmer and hitler and and technically like that person that i really you know pissed me off that i don't right. like right my, my, my ex-wife or you know <laughs> that's really what it comes to mm. so so it isn't i mean i i don't mean to be i'm not trying to like call people out on something but i do think it's important for us to in general recognize that that when we when we say that in, so we sort of generalize the statement we feel like god needs to deal with evil in the world but we don't mean my evil because sure. when i'm talking about my evil i would what would my defense be i don't know christ took care of that on the cross mm -hmm. he, forg he forgave you Okay, what I'm telling you is he does, he forgives you and everyone, but now you're not cool with that. Mm. Oh, the part you're not cool with is not that he doesn't forgive your sins, it's that he, it's that he forgives the sins of other people. Oh, yeah, that bothers me. And so then that we have to really understand that like that's the problem. And then to say, I think it was Brad Jerzak who said this, that, um, although I think he said, he told me he was paraphrasing somebody else, but anyway. I'm gonna, I'm gonna We're just all that. circling everyone else's well, stuff. It was Andre Rabe. Yeah. Somewhere in the middle, Andre's going, <laughs> are you guys kidding me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I think it was, I, heard, I heard Brad say this, that we have to acknowledge that our view of justice looks a lot like, or is indistinguishable from revenge. Mm. Um, but that, that God's idea of justice is restorative justice. It's, it's justice, but it's not beating 
the payment for what happened out of someone. It is restoring and renewing that person to a state of being in mind that they are, it's restoring them to their original innocence, to the childlikeness yeah. they had before they were twisted and bent into someone who would do something evil. And that's true for them and it's true for me. And um, and again, I understand, again, that's our, our we're, sort of, we're sort of ingrained to see justice as something that looks more like revenge. Mm. But that isn't the kind of, that's not what God talks about when he talks about justice yeah it's it's tough it, it fascinates me as well because um something i face again and again and this is a bit of a rabbit trail but i, I love it so let's go down it but because uh, okay, yeah, i'm enjoying talking about this um, yeah. i think justice is such a fascinating concept um but people frequently will levy against me when i talk about this talking about restorative justice rather than a punitive form of justice they'll say well phil like you're just you're just making a god in your own image and I'm like, dude, that is such a compliment because I am nothing like that at all. I don't, right. I don't act like this. You wrong me, and my first thought is, I hope that sucker <laughs> crashes their car today, or you know, I, you know yeah. I am not the most forgiving, restorative, uh, you know, healing person. I, I, you cut me off in the traffic, and I will laugh when you ding someone, someone else with your your fender or something. You know, I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm retributive. I pick yes. up the paper, and it says. Um, child sex trafficking ring busted. They're all going to go to jail for 50 years. I'm like, thank God those suckers deserve it, right? I mean, screw those guys. My, yes. my default is punishment. This yes. is not a God in my image. This is a God in a very different image. It's, it's, in my mind, it's an image of Jesus. It's, it's the image of, yes. of those prophets and, and, and figures that have represented a very different way that humanity opts for by default. Um, yes. But Christ would be in our tradition of Christianity. I'm like, this is a picture of God right here. This guy is going for restorative. He's, he's, he's wanting to overturn wrath, judgment, violence, yeah. power dynamics. He's trying to present a different thing. And nobody liked it. If we're talking about the image of man, generally speaking, I think the image of man is a God that runs around punishing people. Right? Exactly. I mean, that, that seems much more likely. So this idea that you're making a, a namby-pamby God in your own image, like, who are these like loving, forgiving people? I don't know. Right? I mean, I, I mean, of course, I know right. a lot of loving, forgiving people. Most of my friends are, you are, you know, and I am on some level, I'm sure. But that's because I've been transformed by this, not because that's I right. created it. Um, right. and, and so it's, it's just really fascinating to me that we, we perceive this as some sort of man-made creation. But if we look at the general heart of humanity throughout the ages, I don't see that being the underlying no. uh, message where God's coming in going, guys, no, 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 no. I want you to punish each other when you do something. Right. Like I want you to get retribution. What are you doing forgiving each other? <laughs> like that's, that's not humanity no. uh, or it hasn't I mean, been. <laughs> yeah. And the pagan, you know, so let's go back to like the pagan gods, right? Mm. Are they just loving and forgiving or no? Are they like Zeus or Quetzalcoatl or the volcano God who says, you know, I need some virgin <laughs> blood damn yeah. it and i want someone to be tortured in a horrible horrific way and i want you to burn them oh give me your babies i yeah. want you to kill stuff and then maybe for a little while we'll be okay we'll be good that's man's that's idea crazy. god that's, that's not that does that's not you know like you're saying and, and even the other thing is like like how how we why do we act as if it's 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 heresy or it's wrong to imagine a god who's more loving than I am. That's mm. more merciful than you and me. Like, like, um, because a lot of times Christians will throw, go back to this thing. They'll say, like, well, you know, there's that scripture that says, you know, you know, God works in mysterious ways and his ways are higher than ours. Like what they mean by that is 
that's the mysterious way that God can be loving and still like torture some people. Right. But, but the, the context of that verse that God's ways are higher than ours is actually the opposite. It's saying God is more loving and more merciful than you are. Mm. So it's, it's yeah. And, and even that verse I was thinking about, there's a verse that says, you know, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mm. Like that's God's, you know, blanket statement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Like we want the judgment. That's us. And God's like, no, mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy triumphs over judgment, right? Um, it, 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 because of God's love, it's, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance, right? Mm. Not, not giving you the, you know, giving you the paddle or something. So mm. again, it's, it's, we, we do have to rethink that. You're right. Yeah. And I, I think it's, um, I don't know why we struggle with it, but it seems that we do. It's like we're, we're actually, seems like we're more afraid that God might actually be better than we think he is, that he might actually be, you know, better than we think. Because it's like we kind of act like, um, I, I, I get this feeling all the time when we get into these kind of discussions with people, like, uh, it's almost like God is good. God is so good, but he's not that good. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like, are you comfortable saying that? God's so good, but he's not that good. Yeah, that would be a great chance song? Where's back, the right? song that says, God, you're so good, but you're not that good. <laughs> I, I'm just picturing, you know, in, in church when everyone's like, God is good all the time. God is, you know, imagine, that. God is good, not that good. <laughs> not that great. God is so good, but not that good. <laughs> I'd love that chant back. It would just be so funny. That would be um, hilarious. Oh my what gosh. That could almost be like a little video, like a skit, right? It's like yes. someone like, God, God is good, yeah. And then some guy going, but he's not that not good. That good. Hold up, hold up. Oh, but he's, he's not going to love and forget everybody. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. He's, you're right. he's not you're that right. good. God is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. <laughs> Most of the time, God is pretty good. <laughs> to us. I mean, he's good to us. Right. But like, oh. there's other, you, know, you better look out. Yeah, yeah. in my bubble. Um, <laughs> I remember I was in um, America earlier this year, and I was having a conversation with this um, this guy um, who I didn't know. He were friends with people that, I, that were hosting me. And... Um, and we're talking a bit about this concept because he wanted to understand because I think he'd looked online and seen that I teach some different things about hell and things. And he's like, how can you talk about this? And we got into this topic of justice and we started talking about it. And, and the thing that fascinates me, and I always try and open with this um, because I think it's a very tangible way to approach the topic is if we look at like the, the punitive system on earth, how, how systems and societies deal with criminals um, is really fascinating. And, and of course, like, I mean, you're over in America. I know most of the audience, about 60% of the audience, 70% of the audience are in America. You guys have a pretty horrific penal system. Um, it's kind of worldwide acknowledged. It's pretty bad, right? I mean, you've got a quarter of the world's criminals in one country. It's amazing. It's, it's the land of the free. Exactly. Land of the free. Exactly. But most of them are, yeah. yeah. And 97% of them never went to trial. Um, but right. we shouldn't talk about that. Um, isn't that unbelievable? Anyway, sorry. When you start looking at these stats, it's just painful. Um, but, yeah. you know, we look at how prison has operated for a lot of people for the most of history is we look at a criminal and we go, they need to be taken out of society to keep society safe. Yes. But actually, generally speaking, that's not the main motivation. They're taken out of society as a punishment. And then they're punished for X amount of years, which we determine, oh, you stole something, that's uh, three years. Oh, you smoked this, that's one year. Oh, you're that race? Well, that's actually 30 years then. Um, yeah, 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 oh, exactly. you're, uh, you killed someone, that's 28 years. And you raped someone, that's, you know, somehow we have these years for yeah. some crime. And then yeah. after you've served that time, you go out. 
And then we know what happens is across the world in any kind of punitive system on the whole, um, the recidivism rate, the rate of people going back into jail is anywhere between about 70 and 95%. Generally speaking, you go in jail, you spend time in jail, you come out, you're worse than you went in. That's nine, right. nine times out of 10, spending time with criminals and getting yep. no help for the reason that you performed that crime and then getting put back into a system, uh, a, a culture with no help and no support, generally speaking, puts you straight back in and causes That's you right. to do more crime. But what's fascinating is there are countries around the world that are, have started in the last 20, 25 years trialing different models and they, they trial restorative programs. So they go, what if we assumed every person that did something wrong? Now, there's probably a small percentage of people that are sociopaths and will just hurt people for the sake of fun or, uh, you know, inquiry and, and intrigue or whatever. But generally speaking, most people that hurt someone or do something wrong is in a situation themselves, has maybe been hurt right. themselves, is maybe a victim of something, yes. not taking away from the fact they have done something very, very wrong. That doesn't take away from that. But it does give some framework that goes, oh, this might be why that person killed someone or hurt someone or stole or raped or whatever. Understanding that, it looks forward and goes, well, we could lock them up forever and they won't do it again if we keep them in a small enough cage with enough rope tying them up or something. Um, but if they come out, they're going to do it again. Right. What if instead of doing that, we took them out of society, but not as a punishment, but to keep society safe? Because generally speaking, if you're a rapist, it's not a good idea to send you back into society. But instead to bring you out of society and go, let's heal this person. Let's give them yes. daily therapy, group therapy. Let's talk to them about their past. Let's heal, teach them about healthy relationships. Let's give them education on how to relate to um, other people. Let's give them education, um, maybe get them their GDP, uh, you know, their, their general eds, maybe get them higher education or maybe give them a qualification, some apprenticeships, things like that. And then once we have established they're healthier and they're ready to go back inside, not once they've done 27.4 right, yeah, years. Yeah, it's not some arbitrary number. Like, yeah, like the magic, like 28 years solves murder, 10 every years time, solves rape. Every time. <laughs> five years solves stealing something. Yeah, no, it's not, there's nothing magical about the Such number a bizarre notion. Such a bizarre fix, notion. Yeah, it but once it. we've established that you're better, it could be a year, it could be 50 years. You know, let's play it by ear and see how yeah. it actually plays out. We then reintroduce this to society. The earliest countries that started experimenting with this went from, I think Norway was the first one, and it went I was from. I say, Norway, Sweden, yeah. It, Norway went from 87% and their current uh, of reoffend, and their current uh, rate of reoffends in their restorative justice programs, which is almost most of the country now, is 15, 1 5. 1 Whoa. 5. Whoa. Isn't that astonishing? Um, wow. People spend less time in jail. They're treated like humans in jail. They're not dehumanized. They're not treated like scum. They prepare their own meals together. They're given good quality meals. They're not fed like dog food like some people. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they're given um, their own rooms. They look nice. You know, they, and the people are like, what, are they in a hotel to get? You know, no, but they're not like animals. These people are people that need healed and, and restored. Yes. And they go back into society and they contribute to society. A lot of them end up, um, there was a case in London where a terrorist attacked um, someone who had been released from jail and they were like, look at this. Like we shouldn't have released them from jail. If we'd never released them, they would never have um, attacked this person. He, he went on like, like a stabbing rampage or whatever. Oh, wow. um, and so he stabbed like, I think two people or whatever. But what's interesting is he was stopped by another person who, who literally I think died giving his life, trying to grab this guy and hold him to himself. That other guy that did that had also been released from jail, but was in a restorative justice program. And he was wow. 
by all intents and, and measures, he was a terrible person. I think he'd raped a young girl in his younger life and killed her. Um, wow. And he'd gone through a restorative program. And, and I'm not saying he was a perfect person or he was better or what, right, but it yeah, shows but, that yeah. he had some sort of change of thing where he saw someone stabbing people and gone, that's not okay. I'm going to give, I'm going to risk my life. And ultimately he gave his life to try and stop that. That's your two models yes. at the most obvious yes. kind of example. Yes. Now it's, it's a example, it's anecdotal, but I think the numbers are very clear that this program, this type of program is in Norway, it's in Sweden, it's in um, Finland, it's, it's in the UK, it's in um, Portugal, Spain, a lot of countries are rolling out uh, restorative programs. Now I say it's in UK, most of the UK is still punitive but we're, we're yeah. trialing it more and more. We found out yeah. that for every uh, pound, so dollar we spend, we save eight. That's how much it's saving. Yeah. It's this, astonishing. What yeah, what you're talking about, Phil, it just makes too much sense. And that's yeah. why we'll never do it in America. It just well, you don't make money. money. It, it saves money on how much we're spending. It doesn't save money on how much the people in charge are earning. That's <laughs> and so, say, but if, ours is run yeah. by government. So we're interested in saving money could, when you're yeah, run by a business. Yeah. If there's a way we could take that model you're talking about and can we include a, a, a slave labor component to that? <laughs> there's, they can go like in the morning, they can still go to their psychological group therapy things, but in the afternoons, they can go to the slave labor thing right. and build couches. Can they make t-shirts for a penny? Make t-shirts for, yeah, for free. And if we could do, if we could somehow modify that, we might have yeah. something. We might have yeah. something. Yeah. Well, when you're paid a bonus of 20 grand per like re-entry or, you know, there's no... Yep. You know, anyway, but my point, all of that, right? So all of that, I'm, I'm saying to this person and, and he's, he's going, well, you know, like ah, that's kind of crazy, you know, it never work. And I'm like, well, it is working. Like here's the data. I can give you yeah. studies. I can show you the, yeah. the actual hard data from different government agencies and stuff. And, um, and I was like, but my point being was like, well, if that works so well and the world is waking up, maybe not America, maybe the America needs another we'll 20, the last 50, hundred years, who knows, yeah. but if that is working and the world is going, well, restorative justice is a better program than punitive justice. How on earth do we think God hasn't figured it out? Right. If we have, right. Right. Are the Norwegians right. smarter than God? Maybe it turns out, I don't know. <laughs> they seem to have got the jump on him by about 30 years. Um, but, but it's fascinating. And this guy just yeah. couldn't see He was just like, well, I don't know what fantasy land you live in. And I was like, well, it, it literally is. It's pretty great. It's called Europe. <laughs> yes, the wonderful fantasy it's not that, it's not that great but i mean it's a real place and it is working uh, but yeah. well, it would never work and i'm like it is working but it's that refusal yeah. to even entertain these ideas there's yeah. something so ingrained in yes it really is and it's more ingrained in christians than in non-christians yeah that's what drives me the most crazy that's the Phil, hardest right? part christian christians seem to be the hardest people to convince that nonviolence works that loving your enemy works that blessing those who curse you, like, because there's evidence for this too, by the way, there's, there's mm, been studies done, huge. many numerous studies, and there are real world examples of people who have responded to violence with nonviolence or with love, who have blessed the, those who curse them, who've done good to those who hate them, who have nonviolently resisted violent regimes, and have overturned them, who have, have had incredible results. I mean, there's all kinds of data. Uh, there's a girl named Erica Chenoweth. She's done multiple studies on this, I mean, over the last decade. Um, where she has studied all kinds of conflicts around the world, and whenever nonviolent resistance has been employed, it works like 99% of the time. And that when you have some nonviolence with some violence, it's, it's about like 50-50. And of course, then when you violence with violence, it almost like never works because mm. it just creates more violence. But there's all kinds of studies that have been done. And again, 
it doesn't matter because Christians are the hardest people to convince of these yeah. kinds of things we're talking about. Even though one of the people that I think is probably the biggest proponent and um, one of the biggest voices of, uh, on the, these kinds of things we're talking about is Jesus. Mm. Like, if you just go back, forget the studies, forget the, you know, you forget all, just go to Jesus. What does he say? Like mm -hmm. someone told me, you know, if you're a rabbi, the, the guy you're following is Jesus. What does he say? Mm. You know, uh, it's, it, this even maps to like what's going on right now, you know, in America right now with COVID. There's all these Christians, you know, like uh, saying, you know, my rights are I, I, I'm not going to wear the mask. I don't I shouldn't have to wear the mask. I don't have to wear the mask. You mm. can't force me. This is some evidence that you're trying to control me and blah, blah, blah. And and I just don't get it. I'm, I just want to say, OK, I got it. The law tells you the, the, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, you tells you that you don't have to comply. But what does the law of Christ tell you? Remember mm. that guy? What, did, what, what would he say about whether you should put your needs ahead of the needs of others, whether you should consider others better than yourself, whether you should look not only to your own needs, but to the needs of people around you, where right, you should, and again, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, can be concerned about the outcasts, the weaker, the poor, all that. Like, we've just forgotten that. Like, that's yeah. not that's not really a, at the front of our minds that we're really trying do it. Like what we're trying to do is to follow Christ is to follow the teachings of Jesus. And if we did that consistently, maybe this wouldn't be such a problem, but Christians again, seem to be the hardest people to convince of these things. Yeah. It's, it's really, um, it's very interesting to me. There's an interesting dynamic. Me and my wife talk about this a lot because we're seeing more and more in the UK, um, a quite an extreme shift. So in Europe, we've always been quite different in our Christianity to America anyway. We, not always, maybe, but for a long time. Um, a bit like Darby couldn't get the ground running, right? But he went over to America and it just worked. Um, but for the most part, you know, you see, um, and again, Europe is different. It's politically different. It's socially different. We're much more left-leaning and, and things like that. Yep. We're much more um we've we've lost to satan many years ago you know we, we already you know we set up our antichrists he's doing his thing i don't know which one you pick but pick any of them merkel or the pope or you know sure. who knows um but what's really fascinating is in the last few years it seems that christianity in, in the uk has kind of gravitated towards a lot of what uh, america has to offer whether it's charismatic movements like bethel and and things like that but they're really trying to pull a lot from uh, amazing things that if you're in that that framework and you're in that stage of Christianity, that's some amazing. If you're a charismatic Christian, you see what Bethel's doing and this stuff. It's an amazing leap and bounds forward uh, in in what's healthy Christianity in my books. Now it's still in other books that I have very unhealthy. Um, sure, uh, and you know who who isn't right? Who who doesn't have their own stuff they're working through? But it does seem that the UK in doing that has started to grab a lot of these kind of extreme positions. And it is fascinating that 20 years ago this would never have been a discussion. Um, but right now it's the only discussion in the UK that really the only people we're seeing with these kind of arguments again are Christians. And I'm like this is fascinating. You would never, Christians have always been um, very much um, anti-violence, anti-torture, anti-war, anti-weapons, uh, all these kind of things. And that's all shifted quite a bit. You know, I'm seeing Christians here, you know, giving rhetoric, same sort of rhetoric you're seeing of like, well, it's my right to not wear a mask. And I'm like, 
but why? What does the mask do? Well, they say it's to protect other people, but I don't have to. And it's, it's this very self-involved Christianity yes. Yes. Um, that didn't used to be such a key component to Christianity. And, this, and so it's fascinating that for a long time, I saw America kind of playing catch up to the UK and, and Europe as probably its trajectory. I could go, oh, they're maybe moving in that direction. What's actually interesting is it feels like there's a meeting in the middle somewhere um, yeah. of those that are still in that bubble of Christianity. I, I think people that are deconstructing and, and reimagining what Christianity, a progressive Christian, you know, oh, yeah. there's a lot of other types out there than the conventional movement. But it, it does feel that there's something about um, that type of Christianity, this kind of charismatic, evangelical, American Christianity that is deeply rooted in quite a selfish ideology. It's very me, 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 me. Um, I don't know if you would agree with that. Um, and oh, I don't no, necessarily totally. mean that's a bad thing. I think there's some good components to like having some autonomy and, you know, having a individual kind of path with of spirituality. That's quite a healthy thing, you know, in some ways. Yeah. But what, 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 what do you think that is? Like in your observations, do you, what do you think draws us into that? Um, that what, what is it that causes a Christian to be so passionate about being allowed not to wear a mask and not being told to wear a mask over, you know, just going, oh, this will, this will stop sick people getting ill around me? Yeah, sure. That seems like a really good Christ-like yeah. action. You know, what I do to the least of these. That seems yeah. like a logical jump for me, but it isn't yeah. for some people. I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Um, <clears throat> there was a, a, a this. I think this was recently, and I I'm pretty sure this I can attribute this quote uh, correctly. Uh, William Paul Young, who wrote The Shack, mm. recently uh, did an interview and in, in, talking about this issue, and he said, "Your rights are where love goes to die." Mm. And I think this is exactly right. And I think so. When I see Christians so concerned about their rights and their individual freedoms and all that it's to me an indication that we have lost the message of love we've lost the importance of love that love should be first and foremost first and foremost our defining characteristic um because again if you are if your focus is loving god um loving your neighbor as yourself and jesus boiled it all down to that what are the two greatest commands? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest command is like the first one, to love your neighbor as yourself. And and I can I think we could say is certainly when it as it applies to this conversation and the things we're observing, we're not doing a very good job of those two things. We're mm. not really learning how to lo love God or to love our neighbors ourselves. And I think I've I've noticed this in myself, and I and I I think then I can turn and see how it's also been something that I see other Christians wrestling with. Um, and this may take us in a totally different direction again, but um, it's, it's understanding that that idea of loving God and loving others is not a one way street. Mm. It's not me loving God and then me trying to love you or my neighbors. It's, re it's reciprocal. Okay. So there is, there's an element. In other words, I can't really, well, let's flip it around. You, Phil, if you try really hard to love me and you're sincere and you really do love me and you're trying your absolute best to love me, but I'm doing this, I'm, I'm putting my hands up, I'm, I'm holding you at bay, I'm closed off to you, I'm not, if I don't receive that love, you're not going to be able to love me. But see, that's what we do. So if, 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 if at one hand I'm trying, I'm trying to love God, 
but I'm not really receiving God's love. Mm. Uh, I'm not believing that he loves me. I'm not living as if I be- my identity is. I'm someone absolutely 100% totally loved by God. I'm not a worm. I'm not a wretch. I am loved by God. That's who I am. So I'm receiving the love of God and I'm receiving your love. I do- I'm not wearing a mask. I'm not pretending, I'm not faking. I'm actually willing and wanting to be and receive love from other people. And I'm open to that. I'm vulnerable. That means I can get hurt. And you, mm. I could then if I, because if I make myself vulnerable to receive love, it also makes me vulnerable to get hurt and wounded. And that's what happens. But that's part of what it means to, to practice this whole idea of being, being loved by others and being loved by God. And if we eliminate that portion of it, if we refuse to allow ourselves to be loved by God and we refuse to allow ourselves to be known and loved by others, we are going to totally fail and mm. this command to love God and love others. Cause if I'm not receiving love from God, I can't love you either. And if I'm yeah. not receiving love from you, you can't love me. Yeah. And I, then I'm not really loving you either because I'm not really allowing my full self into the cr- equation. Yeah. And I think that's a big, big component. And now there's even so many things wrapped into that, this whole worm theology what a worm, what a wretch. Sure, yeah. That's part of all of our worship songs. Yeah. You know, I don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. And Somehow he loves us in spite of it. Maybe because yeah, when yeah, he, he just to, sees Jesus. Yeah, or, yeah, this gets back to the whole, he's good, but he's not that good. And mm. neither am I, by the way. I'm also a worm and a wretch and scum. Yeah. And um, mm. here I am again, Jesus, on my knees, begging you to forgive me. Yeah. Like we're, we keep ourselves in this posture of always begging for forgiveness, begging for acceptance, begging for God to forgive us again. Mm. And so we keep ourselves in that place. We're not really worthy of God's love. We're not really worthy of forgiveness. We can't allow ourselves to be free to see ourselves as people who are loved, truly, radically, amazingly loved yeah. by God all the time. Um, not focused on sins, but focused on reconciliation right and with god and with others like that to me is a key key component and it seems simple but i think it's very very key so let me ask you this so because this fascinates me but um we're talking about this how like it it seems to be in a lot of cases christians are doing this terribly um but we're looking outside of um, maybe a lot of conventional very fundamental forms of christianity there's tons of christians that are doing this amazing and even in very conventional forms of christianity there's loads of that this is this is very broad strokes and it's probably very unfair at times as well um and so i want to make that clear you know of course there's exceptions to this there's plenty of amazing people out there there's plenty of pastors that are going no we're not opening our church we're protecting people you know we'll put on food banks but we're wearing masks and no one's to come except you know like there's lots of you know we may be gathered but we're spaced out we're not going to sing so of course you know this is not like every christian (laughs) is evil or anything like that but there there does seem to be this like dynamic of like wow a lot of people are like this is my god-given right i'm a christian you know whatever that might be um and maybe lots of christians would go well they're not real christians anyway or you know because christians love to say that um they love to decide who is or isn't but what i do want to say is you know looking at how you presented things there a lot of it is understanding the love by god and in that being able to love others you know being able to love um the least of these what do you think that looks like for those that don't conceptualize god the way that that many do as christians because for me a lot of people 
outside the church who would probably say, I don't believe in God or Jesus, or maybe I kind of do, but certainly not like that. But certainly a lot of people go, no, I'm, I'm completely, I'm done with that. Or I've never believed that I'm atheist, agnostic, you know, I'm Hindu, I'm a mystic or whatever. What do you think that that's going on? Is there a component of that playing out in their day-to-day life where it doesn't have the Christianese, it doesn't have the right. obvious, oh, this is God. Because to me, I'm like, oh, I know loads of people that wouldn't say, oh yeah, God loves me because they don't believe in God or anything, but they're certainly going, no, it's the loving thing to do, to care for people, to wear a mask. Yeah. In fact, most of the people that were educating me on that long before anyone else were non-Christian people going, right. dude, you've got to be wearing a mask. This is how you, how you care for people. Everyone else, it's not, it's not even about keeping yourself safe. This is about keeping everyone around you safe. We need to do this. And I'm like, well, you really care about people. Um, <laughs> how come you care about people more than me? I'm supposed to be like God. Or, you know? right. um, what, what do you think that is? What, is, that, is that a component of, is there a component of receiving love from God? in a secular context or language or yeah. way? Do, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I do, um, because I think, and again, a lot of Christians are, would get really nervous about what I'm going to say, but... Um, it's not too many of those types of Christians listen to this anyway. So probably not. They're not and, by, and, they, and if they are, they gave up a long time ago. Probably. Well, several <laughs> um, episodes ago, I think about 30 episodes yeah, ago. <laughs> um, but you know, there's, a, there's that amazing verse in First John that says, this radical thing, God is love. And all who live in love live in God and God in them. And so maybe what happens is like for Christians, we just have a screwy sometimes understanding of who God is and who I am. And so that's what messes us up. But like you said, someone who's an atheist or someone who just gave up on Christianity a long time ago, or you're a Hindu or whatever. I mean, you're not, you're, you're not being confused or distracted by kind of screwy ideas about yourself or God, or I'm a wretch, I'm a worm, or God hates me or whatever. So you're not even thinking of that. You're just living in love, right? Mm. And according to First John, if you're doing that, God is living in you. And in, in, a, in, a, in actually a less complicated, screwy way, because you're not, you're not distracted or confused by these things that you've been, this framework you've been given. You're just like, you're just saying, you're free to just say, these kids over here are suffering. I want to help them. Or this guy over here in the corner, man, he looks hungry. I'm going to go get him something to eat. Good. And if you could just simply do that, guess what? God is love. And if you live in love, you're living in God and God is living in you. Whoa. Mm. It's it's like the, the simplicity of it. In some ways, like people can walk it out and live it out in, in a very simple way. And not even, and probably even if you told them, hey, by the way, what you just did, that was very Christ-like whatever i don't you know <laughs> that's okay because what happens what happens in matthew 25 right when jesus uh stands at the throne of judgment and there's he addresses these people and he says by the way when you gave you know you fed the hungry you visited those in prison and you know people in prison you uh you took care of the orphan and the widow when you did all those things by the way you did it for me and because of that, I'm going to bless you. And, and, their, and, and their reaction is, what? We did? What did, when did we do that? I don't, I don't remember that. Because that's not why they were doing it. They weren't even thinking it. They, it was not even the, in their minds. But that's not the point. It's not, we're not doing it to do some religious thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's just operating out of that place of simple love and compassion. If we could just get to that, that's probably better than the, the- theological stuff that messes us up. Yeah. 
That's, that's really interesting. Yeah, because I, I think this a lot. Like I used to say this all the time when I was a, a very passionate, good, born again, evangelical Christian. I was like, you know, if there's one evidence of um, that kind of always messes with me, um, and certainly then I was like, it's the fact that I'm the I'm a Christian. And generally speaking, most of the non-Christians I know are better people than me. They're nice. Yeah, people. they're nice. This is yeah. this is when I used to preach all about grace and things like that. But this is how grace works, right? I mean, it's yes. it's evidence that like there is grace because I'm not a particularly better person than any of these people. In fact, most of the time I look around and go, God, I'm a lot worse than these people. And, and it's <laughs> evidence that God goes, that's not the point. I'm not playing that game. Um, that's, right. that's how I used to frame it. Um, and I probably still on some level would frame it that way, but but I think it, it should challenge us. It should challenge us that I look at around and go, gosh, these, those are people that have no concept of God the way that um, right. many Christians do. And they're doing just as an amazing a job loving people. That's right. um, and maybe it is something to do with being able to love yourself a lot better than a lot of Christians can because they're told you're filthy, rotten, sinners, right. worms, yeah, they, wretches. Yeah, they, they rejected that. Yeah, like, no, what are you talking about? Yeah. And yeah. we've all tried to evangelize to that person and go, right, so hear me out. Hold on to the end you are filth right. <laughs> right. well no no don't leave yet hold on to the end and yeah. we're trying to convince people that they're terrible people so we can right. then convince them to get saved so, that's right um, no yeah see like you ever watch uh ray comfort you know who ray comfort is i do i had an argument with ray uh once on um in la uh on on, yeah. on his soapbox i once started an argument with him because <laughs> he was like shaming some young kids it was and awful. that's what he does that's his whole shtick step one convince these kids on the uh, in, on the beach in california on the boardwalk in la or malibu or whatever hey hey kid come here come here are you a good person yeah i'm a good person oh let me convince you that you're not you're an adulterer you're a liar you're a murderer you're a thief and you're gonna burn in hell good news right you have to start with that convince right. them about first and then oh good now i'm gonna save you from that right I, in front of a crowd as well right it's like yeah, you're just like yeah. shamed in front of everyone yeah, Oh yeah, you feel like like crap. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so yeah. screwy. But that that's I remember doing not I didn't do that kind of stuff in the soapbox or whatever, but I remember like, you know, having conversations with my colleagues at work, you know, yep. awkwardly going, I've got to evangelize. I've got to try that's and right. tell them on some level they're an awful person. And actually Sheila's really nice. I like <laughs> she brings brownies in every Thursday and right. like, you know, she's always nice to me and asks me how I'm like she's not a terrible person. How am I supposed to convince her? She's just a worm. You know, I'm like right. you try to do this intellectual kind of like incredible gymnastics in my head, trying to yeah. figure it out. Um, it's so fascinating. So, so fascinating. So we are so far from the end times. I was going to say, so, boy, we got way up, but I was like, whatever, let's it's, talk. it's good. But so one <laughs> of the things I want to ask you about end times is, is, is fascinating. I see this as a key component to a lot of people's Christianity is this, needs to be persecuted there's this like persecution complex of like yep. as a as a christian we need to be being persecuted if we're not being because you see it in the weirdest ways right where they i mean some of the things that people are being persecuted in you're like i don't think that's persecution i, I yeah. don't know it just seems a bit odd um, right. but what do you think that seems heavily tied into end times you know you'll, you'll be persecuted or something do you know yeah. much about what that is or why that's interwoven? Is that a dispensational thing or does that run? I mean, obviously persecution has always happened in the church to some degree yes, or another. Yes. yes. I mean, yeah. So yeah, persecution is something in general that the church, obviously you can study the martyrs and all that. Mm. And it continues to this very day, right? There's, there's churches, Christian churches and, 
you know, Africa and India and all over the place that are being burned and people are being killed and thrown in jail in China and North Korea and things like this. So absolutely Christian persecution uh, is an ongoing thing. Um, but it's specifically tied to the end times. The reason why we often will see persecution happening and then we'll use that to say, that must, that's a sign that's a sign because, you know, Jesus said in all of the discourse that before the end, they will arrest you and they will, you know, bring you, bring you to the courts. And, uh, you know, and in those times when that happens, don't worry about what you're going to say. I'll give you the words to say, blah, blah, blah. And so persecution is tied to sort of one of the signs of the end times. But <clears throat> this is what my book is trying to, uh, to illustrate is that, um, these end times, quote, quote unquote, end times prophecies that we tend, to, again, because of mainly because of Darby's dispensational theologies that have crept in, we tend to have an expectation that this is some future thing that's going to happen, or it's going to happen today or tomorrow. It's like any minute now. Right. It's, it's going. It's imminent. It's going to happen. Um, and, and what we miss is that those specific scriptures that are talking about these kinds of things, whether it's the persecution or the tribulation or all these kinds of things that are going to happen, already happened. Mm. So for like very specifically the Olivet Discourse, which again, it's in Matthew 24, it's repeated in Mark, it's repeated in Luke. And if you lay all three of them side by side, and I recommend doing this, it's actually very helpful to notice that um, it's the exact same story in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke with a few minor variations. And it's those minor variations in those, in those stories that can help you understand a lot of the more problematic things like what is the abomination of desolation? Because Matthew and Mark just say the abomination of desolation. But in Luke, when it comes to that part of it, um, Luke tells you what it is. Mm. And it's, it's not what you think it is. It's not the story we've been told. But, but if you... If you read them you know, side by side, if you study, and I do this in the book, it would take a long time to go through the Olivet Discourse. What you, what you notice is at the beginning, all three times, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the beginning of this narrative, which we have been told is about some future event that hasn't happened yet. The, the beginning of the conversation is this. They're, they're coming. Jesus and, and the disciples are leaving the temple. The disciples stop and, and marvel at this temple, and they tell Jesus, Jesus, isn't this temple magnificent? Have you seen it, ever seen anything so glorious and so amazing? Is And it was, it was one of the wonders of the world, right? Mm. Herod's temple. It's like, it was this gorgeous, amazing, incredible temple. And Jesus responds to them when they say that and says, a day is coming soon when one, when not one stone of this temple will be, will rest upon the other and all of it will be destroyed. <gasps> Jesus, What? Tell us when will this, these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So these are the mm. questions they asked Jesus in reference to that temple getting knocked to the ground. And so then Jesus goes up on the Mount of Olives. This is why it's called the Element Discourse. And he proceeds to explain to them when and how that temple in Jerusalem that they were just pointing to and marveling at is going to be destroyed. And it's in that context that Jesus then talks about all of these things that we have been told now are about some future thing that hasn't happened yet. Mm. And that's a very simple way of looking at it. Now you'd have to go through, and this is what I do in the book is go, let's go one thing at a time. What did Jesus say here? 
what was this about? It's about the destruction of that temple. And did it or did it not happen? Mm. Yes, it did. And here's how. And so that's the part that's missing, I think, in, in our scriptures, is that we have all these prophecies about the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We have the prophecies that, of how they're going to happen, but there's nothing written in the scripture that says, and here's how it was fulfilled. Yeah. Now, in history, we do. If you study Roman history, uh, you know, the history of the first century, you study the writings of Josephus and, and some other guys who lived around the same time, then you will get a picture like, oh, here's what actually happened. And that's kind of the missing component. So it's very convenient if you're a dispensational futurist that you can say, well, the Bible says this is going to happen. Well, did it already, you know, did these things happen? Well, apparently not. So apparently we're still waiting. Mm. This hasn't happened yet. So we're still looking forward to these things happening. Um, And that, that is what I'm trying to show in the book um, that we have been, we've been, confused about what Jesus is actually talking about in, in that passage specifically and in Revelation. Um, what It's very similar, by the way, to what I talked about in my book about hell, mm. um, because it's the same passages most of the time where uh, some of them are, are attributed to hell and some of them are attributed to the future in times or second coming or whatever. But they're the same verses that are also representing apocalyptic hyperbole, which is used in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel about stars falling from the sky and the moon turning to blood and the sun not getting its light and all these kind of things. Again, these, this is apocalyptic imagery, metaphorical hyperbole, not about a literal thing that's going to happen, but about it. it's, it's using this language to describe in, in sort of cosmic terms, a very, literal destruction of a city or a nation that's coming, you know, in the future. And so because of that, we, we sort of take these things literally, well, the stars haven't fallen from the sky. So I guess, you know, you know, the, the the heavens haven't been rolled up like a taco. Uh, So Jesus, we didn't see Jesus riding on a pony in the sky. So I guess this hasn't happened yet. Well, those are, those are not literal. (laughs) They're figurative images. They're even used in the, to describe old Testament events that we know have already happened. They use, they use the exact same language to talk about, you know, the destruction of Edom or, or Egypt or even Jerusalem in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus uses the same language to describe the destruction of Jerusalem, when that temple is going to be knocked down, he's also not talking about literal events. He's describing in these apocalyptic hyperbolic terms, this destruction that's going to come. Mm, that's so good. So this this was really new information to me when i first um i don't know if you ever um tracked with jonathan welton back in the day he's he was he was a really great teacher in in a lot of ways and and he exposed me to different views of um of uh end times teachings and and he had a great book called rapturous i I loved it oh yeah yeah, okay yes i've heard of that book i have heard of that book um it was great and it went through all the different um passages bit by bit and was like well and that happened here and that happened here and that happened and i was just like how the hell did no one tell me about this? Like, you know, at what right. point did none of my pastors take a single history lesson in like seminary or uni or, um, I just was like mind blown that like, you know, a huge portion of the, all of, uh, of it discourse is really black and white. Like, well, this is just, there you go. You lay it out. I think, um, yep. was it George Lads that, um, wrote in the turn of the century about, I think 
early 1900s, maybe the late 1800s, he wrote a book all about, it was a really short book, um, but he basically lays out, this is what 70 AD looked like, and it is yep. brutal, it's graphic, it talks about, you oh, know, it is. I mean, 500 to 1,000 people getting crucified every day, yeah, and yeah. then flinging the dead bodies back over the wall, trying to like, you know, starve them out, people eating their children, yes. I mean, like, it's horrific i think it really they, was they estimate there was about three million people um uh, in and around jerusalem at that time and by the end of it there was about a hundred thousand left that's right I and mean, that give or take that i don't know the numbers that exactly. right there of what you just described is the fulfillment of this tribulation that will come upon them that is mm. that such as has never come before that's the language jesus is using when he describes what was fulfilled and what you're talking about people right. eating their own children people being crucified you know, you know hundreds of people at a time and like yeah. yeah it was brutal and horrific and crazy and if you don't study josephus and plenty the younger and some of these other guys who lived around that time who by the way are hostile sources they're not they're Christians. not great sources although josephus was a bit um, warped in some ways and potentially hijacked. Yeah, and I agree, but, and I and I talk about that. Yes, still hostile, I would say. Yeah, but not, not a Christian. <laughs> He's not pro-Christian. He's not aware. Yeah. Like Josephus isn't going. You know, Jesus said these things in all of a discourse, and I'm going to find a way to report what happened in a way that will, you know, overlap with what Jesus said. He's oblivious to what Jesus says. He's not. A, he's a Jewish guy. He's not a mm. Christian. He's actually pro-Roman. He's just telling you what he sees happening. And, and so he's reporting what he happens, what, what's happening in front of him. And so, but when you read what the, what he describes, and then you look at how it lays up next to all of the discourse. Right. It's like he's reading. It's mind blowing. Yeah. And again, like you said, no Christian pastor ever, no Bible teacher ever pointed this out to me. And it's crazy. We have more of an appetite for the crazy, fantastic thing in the future that's going to happen. Oh my gosh, won't that be crazy? Then we are for the incredible fulfillment of biblical prophecy that happened, right? right? That we can point and see like, oh my gosh, where's our appetite for that? Why, why aren't mm. we curious about that? Yeah. So and I think it's because, right, there's, 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 a, there's a narrative, there's a story we've been telling that props up a belief system and we don't want to undermine that. We don't want anybody to question it. So we kind of like hush that up and keep that in the corner because it's always, mm. it's advantageous to keep all that in the future. It's sort of this carrot that we dangle out yeah. there in the, in the future somewhere. You need to be ready. You need to watch out. You need to you know, keep coming back. And, yeah. uh, you know, we got to keep the show going. Um, and honestly, I think it's, it's, it, it seems to me that um, this, this something, this, this is something kind of started probably in the, in the third, maybe second, third, fourth century. Um, there was, a, there was a confusion, I think with a lot of the, some of the later church fathers. And they found themselves in a position where they did still have sort of these prophecies about the future. And, and it was sort of like, yeah, but if we acknowledge that all of this already happened, it's sort of like, now what? So like, I think we started leaning towards the being open-ended to like, well, maybe these things haven't been fulfilled and we are still looking for something out there in the future mm. in some way. And then that kind of like made it possible for people to sort of like, well, let, let me come up with a theory and let me connect a dot over here. And again, it didn't become prominent or widely accepted until Darby kind of came up with this, connected all these dots. But, um, but I do feel like in some ways there was a... Um, 
I mean, I talked to I talked to several people that I some Bible scholars that I that I respect when I was writing the book, and like who acknowledged that there's a definite difference between um, sort of native Greek speaking or Aramaic speaking church fathers who later on were replaced by church fathers who spoke Latin and who didn't understand Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew. And, and then, so there was an understanding about mm. some of these scriptures that they sort of got kind of lost. Oh yeah. So it dissipates over time, which then makes it open-ended for people to come in and go, well, let, let me tell you how it must fit. Right. Um, and I think there is a little bit of that happening, but yeah. Well, you see this all the time with a Christian just opening up Strong's concordance or whatever and going, Oh, I'll interpret it for you. And you're like, do you have any idea how hard it is to read Greek? It's not easy. <laughs> it's not you easy. don't do that. Um, <laughs> it's really, really brutal, isn't it? Um, yeah. it's, it's fascinating though. Um, that dynamic. I had a question that's just completely escaped me. Um, what were we talking about? My brain. I don't know. Oh, about the end times being kind of like putting a carrot out in the future, something we always have to look forward to that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I, I think it, it, I don't know. We were talking about how this kind of like there's an element we have to keep something there. Yeah. You know, we've got these promises of Christ returning, something going on. Uh, but like, I, I know I've, I've read from multiple different scholars now, even about Paul's evolution of what he thinks, you know, and yes. so early Paul, Jesus is coming back any minute. Like people are going, hey, Paul, I'm engaged. Should I get married? And he's like, no, don't bother. Just, you know, he'll be back in a week, yeah. two weeks, yeah. five years. I don't know, but there's no point in getting married and having kids. Just get it done. There's some how Lindsay shit right there. You know, like, it's yeah, like yeah, don't yeah. go to uni, don't get a job. <laughs> just like, you know, don't have kids. Just, you know, Jesus is coming back in 88. Yes. You're fine. Um, and then what happens, all the Christians kind of vacate, you know, the education world and, you know, all these yeah. different kind of realms because they all waited for Jesus to come back. Um, but Paul, like you can see the shift in Corinthians, you know, when he suddenly shifts and he's like, all right, look, I know I said not to get married, but here's the thing. Some of you are burning with like, you know, a desire to desire, get married. Yeah, go ahead and, and give like, me. To be honest with you, Jesus is taking way longer than I thought. So yeah. maybe get married. Cause I think I'm not sure on the timeline anymore. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and you yeah. can see Paul's stance on end times and, and some of his severe kind of like extremist positions based on, yes. Oh, Jesus is coming back any minute. He seems to like soften up and go, Oh, actually, maybe any minute is too soon. Maybe at yeah. some point is a better position to hold because yeah. Jesus isn't showing up for the early church, right? There was there's definitely yeah. a dynamic going on in the very, very early church where they were like, yeah. Well, Jesus is coming back. I don't know what it looks like. And they didn't have like the same kind of like fanciful ideas of what it looked like that we do. But they thought, yeah. Well, Jesus is coming back. He said he's coming back. The angels said they're coming back. Yeah. But they 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 changed and morphed and and we can see that yes. in church history we've we've adapted and and so there is this response i think on some level in the early church 270 ad where even if that's the fulfillment of these kind of prophecies well jesus didn't come back right so he he ticked all these boxes and you're working your way through the olivet discourse and you're working your way yeah. through revelation and it certainly gets to a bit and you're like all right jesus but where the hell are you right it's not like jesus so, at so, the end is yeah. going da da yeah so, but see, here, here's the thing, and I, and I don't know, it's so hard, I think, maybe in some ways, to know what was in their head. Mm. Like, like you say, Paul, I agree with you. I do think that uh, Paul's ideas are probably a lot of the early first century Christians, um, they're under, because their understanding of Christ changed over time. He's, yeah. he's, a, he's a, we think he's, the, he's a rabbi, he's a great teacher. Oh, we think he could be the Messiah. Oh, wait, hold on. Whoa, I think maybe he's the son of God. Uh, and, and how even the term Messiah became Christ and Christ mm. went from being 
sort of a Jewish savior to sort of this cosmic um, Christ being that is in, who fills everything in every way, right? And whoa. So absolutely, it, it, there are some of these ideas that change. But at the same time, I, I wonder if even when you, like when you just said, Jesus is coming back, right? Or this, Jesus is coming again. We tend to picture this, the, the second coming of Jesus again is like, you and I are talking and all of a sudden, go, 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 what the, holy crap, look outside. Oh my God, oh my God, it's Jesus. Oh my gosh, Jesus is coming back. Whoa, he came back there. Did you look outside the window? Jesus is coming back. Like that. Yeah. That's what we think, but that's a dispensational idea. Sure. I think Whose that, window I, does he come back outside as well? well everybody's apparently. Right? Is he just kind of everywhere, but not? <laughs> yeah. so, so you know what I mean? Like we take it as a literal, the guy, Jesus, physically, yeah. is up there at 30,000 feet on a horse, and he's <laughs> about, here he comes, here he's, he's coming back. And we think of that. But see, I think, especially in the Olivet Discourse, and in, in, in the way Jesus framed it, again, let's back it up. At the beginning of all the discourse, disciples, isn't this an awesome temple? Jesus, that temple is going to get knocked flat on the ground. Whoa, Jesus, tell us about your coming. Mm. Why did they throw your coming into the question about a, a temple being yeah, knocked? Because he's not gone yet. Well, it's not only that; it's that there's a there's that phrase about God coming uh, on the Old Testament, as well mm -hmm. as even in Revelation, when Jesus Jesus addresses the seven churches. He, he warns them, you better do this and you better do that and stop doing this or I will come to you. That's not a blessing. Because when he says, I will come to you, it's I'm going to take away your lampstand. I'm going to, mm. I'm going to, there's going to be some judgment in my coming. So there's a, there's this, there's this, I think, a Jewish expectation of when you use the phrase, the coming of God or Jesus coming in the clouds. It's not a woohoo, yay! It's a you better watch your ass. Right. It's Zeus with his lightning bolt. Yeah, it's and again, and not in the sense of God's this angry God. It's more in the sense of like, you know, we haven't listened to God. We've not been following the path God in, intended us to be on, and now we're gonna there's there's a cause and effect. Mm. We are now gonna reap what we have sown, which is we didn't pay attention to what He said. And but it's still it's not a happy thing. It's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is not a good thing. It's like who can withstand it? It's it's a heavy, scary. It's it's AD seventy. It, mm. It's people being crucified and people eating their babies and death and destruction and fire and blood. It's, it's it's horrific. That's the coming I believe that they were expecting was going to happen. And I think we insert in there this happy sort of rapture or Jesus comes back and we give him a big hug and high five. I don't know that, I, I don't know that for sure that that's their expectation when they use these phrases in the scriptures. Sure. And, and even in Paul's writings about the coming now. Right. But so I they do, see him talking about destroying the temple. They're like, Whoa, so God's going to come and destroy the temple. Or you, Jesus yes. are going to bring about God's coming and destroying this temple and judging Israel yeah. in some way. That's kind of how they're perceiving. It's, yeah. It's the, it's the coming of the Lord coming in the, in the sense of yes, in judgment, the end of the age, right. going back to Daniel, these things that have been prophesied on. Yeah. So again, I, I, I know that even in that language, people get nervous about, Oh, I don't see God as an angry God. No, again, we, we have to back ourselves out of that understanding. I, I, I would contend that it's not as if, this what happened in 8070 is what God wanted. I mean, the reason he sent 
his son was because he loves the whole world. Mm -hmm. And his desire was that none should perish, right? That for God so loved the world, he sent his only son, why? To rescue them, to save them, to show them a way to escape and avoid this AD 70 reality. That is not at all. He did everything in his power to warn mm -hmm. them, to stop them, to change it, to please, please, please don't, don't do that. Yeah. So when it happened, you know, we can't picture God or Jesus going, gotcha. That's not his, his mm -hmm. he's weeping. It's like, ah, why, why did he weep when he went into Jerusalem, right? Um, on Palm Sunday, he wept because, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known the things that make for peace. Yeah. But you didn't, and you wouldn't. And, and, and again, even in the Josephus talks about all these signs that God continued to give them all the way up to the day they were destroyed, yeah. that um, God's heart was not. So in other words, again, it's not God wanting to bring this destruction. He, he right. doesn't want to bring it. But, but it comes not because God brings it. It comes because, because over and over and over again, you know, there was, no, there was no response to embracing the message of Jesus. Yeah. and all the different opportunities they were given to avoid that. Yeah, because ultimately so, 70 AD was the ultimate end consequence of Jesus's message saying, look, if you keep pissing off the Romans, if you keep yes. trying to be the great nation of Israel and fighting all these huge powers and trying to yes. establish yourself, you're going to get Romaned, right? Yes. You're going to get what they do well. Yeah. Um, and, and that's exactly what happened. So, right, they really just continually, you know, pissed yeah, off Rome used, enough, yeah. and eventually, they, enough uprisings, enough rebellions, and Rome just snapped. Um, yeah. And so, I can see that. I can see. That. I think people still, you still struggle with that. You know, you struggle. I mean, it's 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 the it's the Odyssey at the end of it, isn't it? It's it's why does God allow millions of people yeah. become a hundred thousand? Because you know a few rebels kept rising up or why yeah. does, you know, entire countries starve to death while we, you know, yeah. all, all sorts of different things happen. Uh, these are the hard parts that many Christians will put on God and others will go, whoa, 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 this is yeah. human but consequence. You know what? Yeah. What I, what I would say about that too, because I, I had a similar conversation uh, with actually Katie Valentine and I were talking about this. Um, and it's not, I, I guess I want to be very careful too, because sometimes when we talk about AD 70 and what happened there, you know, it'd be, people hear it sometimes through a filter of, oh, that's very anti-Semitic. Mm, that's, yeah. you, you know, it's like, no, 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 look, I mean, that's just one example. But I think you could look throughout history before this and after this, multiple mm. examples of how we refuse to listen to the things that make for peace. Yeah. Where over and over again, God gives everybody, every, every nationality, every race, every, every people, an opportunity to choose yeah. the better path. And because we don't listen you know, we live by the sword and we die by the sword. Yeah. And we can see examples of that going on right now in Yemen or in, you know, in Africa and the different uprisings that are happening. Like it's, we're, we're still, we as in humanity, we are all still falling for this. It's not a particular Jewish problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a particular Jewish, you know, failing or failure. There, that's, you know, in that particular example, yes, it's something that we can observe that was played out in the Jewish nation, but we could see it played out even in America. We could see it played yeah. out in other nations as well, that we still don't know the things that make for peace. And we sure. are still, if we're not careful, we can go down the same path as well. And the war, the same kind of warnings are still there for us to, to observe. I guess this is the problem with when our, um, traditionally our holy text is a Jewish text and yes. it's based in a Jewish 
uh, rabbi who came in as a prophet and said, look, if you keep pissing off the Romans, they're going to kill you. And then we go, oh yeah, he's right. Obviously the Jews were wrong. And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, good, right, stop. Now let's look at all the other holy texts around the world and all the other groups of people who all had on some level, usually some very wise, mystical, holy person. Yes. Going, hey, if we keep doing this cycle of violence and this ambition of trying to be the great empire and power and whatever we're going to just piss off the other empire and power and we're going to create this violence and violence cycle and it's yeah. going to go bad for us if you honed in on any of them it could seem very anti that group as well it's, sure. it's ultimately yeah. it's it's um so what what you're kind of picking here is this is a this is a problem that anywhere you you focus right. on it could be a very you know buddha could potentially be very anti sure. uh you know indian <laughs> or you know whatever yeah. anti yeah. uh you know asian um, right. But ultimately, he's just kind of going, hey, this is a better way. This is the better way to go. Yeah. Um, and so I think I think that's a great point, because I think it's very easy to when you read something like 70 AD and you just read how horrific it is. I mean, it's horrific. And I mean, yeah. it's one of the more powerful uh, narratives, because you, you, when you read into it in detail, I mean, I'm sure you've done it. Like, yeah. you maybe go into some of your book. I used to teach on this and people would like feel sick, oh, yeah. you know, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd have to make sure there's no kids in the room before I kind of told oh, them yeah. half of yeah. the things. So in yeah. my book, yeah, I do. I go. I have like a whole chapter in the book where I go through the seven signs of Josephus because Josephus uh, illustrates in, um, he, he marks out seven signs that he says were given to the Jewish people leading up to 87. And, they, and they're, some of them are kind of crazy. Like they seem like, like one of them is a cow gives birth to a lamb. Um, I mean, it's like, What? Yeah, you're um, gonna at least kind of go okay what's happening <laughs> right yeah i mean there, there's some crazy things that are like oh. you've got to be kidding voices from the sky and visions in the sky and but um but josephus says that these things happened uh leading up to the destruction of jerusalem and what's interesting though is that a lot of these signs again map to a lot of the things that jesus because jesus even says in, in the all the discourse there will be signs in the heavens mm. and so so then later on when Josephus reports that, well, there were some signs in the heavens. Yeah. Uh, that shouldn't surprise us. Man, Jesus left out the cow giving birth to a lamb. I'm going to say that was a big one he missed. Yeah. Well, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> want the specifics. And even that, even that one, I don't think I go deep into it in the book, but um, obviously there's a whole lot of symbolism there, right? Because the, mm. the, because the, the, uh, the, the, the cow that was being brought in was being brought into the temple to be offered as a, as a sacrifice. And it suddenly, a lamb, it gave birth, like in the temple wow. to, to, a, to a lamb. And it's sort of like this obvious to me, like as a Christian, you could see symbolism like, oh, you're trying to go through this old sacrificial system. You're about to sacrifice this bull or not a bull, a cow. And all of a sudden, bloop, out pops a lamb. Like, oh, a lamb, huh? That's the sacrifice, right? So there's all kinds of symbolism mm -hmm. and crazy stuff. Um, and, and it's not even whether or not you believe those things are true or not. The point is that Josephus reports uh, these signs, these, these things that happened leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and they're pretty amazing. And they yeah. do map to things that Jesus talks about. Mm, so fascinating. So where do you, um, how do you frame a second coming of Christ? So for me, I probably look at it as a much more symbolic component. I, there may well be some, Jesus uh, figure that the human that was Jesus somehow comes back at some point, maybe on a horse, maybe with some trumpets, maybe in a cloud, sure. but probably not in my opinion. Um, I'm not that rooted in that. To me, I would see the second coming of Christ being 
the body of Christ, uh, people filled with the spirit of God coming into this earth. Is it, is that kind of what you're, you're tracking with? I'm, I'm just intrigued by how different people perceive it. Because to me, yeah. I, I'm like, that's a much more beautiful way to see it. That's a much more profound yeah. way to see it in, in my mind. Um, it engages with the the symbolism of it. It engages with that kind of the, the mythological kind of undertone yeah. of what it is to be the yeah. body of Christ. Um, is that largely what you've taken away from your study of the end times? It's less yes. pointing to a Jesus riding on a cloud and more <laughs> um, embodied yes. in people or. Yeah, no, dude, you, you're exactly right. That, that is, that is exactly where I, I kind of go in the second half of my book is to sort of say, I'm like, sorry to spoil your book, by the way. No, no, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, because because uh, we're not going to be able to get into this particulars of it because all no, kinds of questions arise in people's minds when you suggest what you just said, mm. that, this, that the second coming of Christ the second is the incarnation of Christ in the church, in the body of Christ, which is us. And that in some ways, Christ... Um, doesn't need to return because he never left mm. he is alive right now in every one of us and um so yeah it took me a while i, I it's funny because i i kind of feel like i know i didn't invent this view right i i but but i sort of came at it myself you know what mm. i mean like i sort of i remember sitting in my couch one one afternoon and i was reading i think i was reading something in first or second peter or something and i just i read this verse and i was like wait a minute and I jumped over to Revelation, like 21, and I read something like, oh my gosh. And then I jumped back over to something that Jesus says, and like, oh my gosh. And I jump over to Ephesians and Colossians, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I feel like I just figured this out. Right. Like, oh my gosh, the, 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 the return of Christ is his presence. Like when Jesus says, it's better for you if I go away. Mm. And we're sitting here going, today, 2,000 years later, we're going, oh Jesus, it'll be so much better when you get back. Yeah. I mean, if we're going to be honest, right, if like Jesus was sitting in the room and could explain stuff to us, that would be better than a lot of our concept of what Christianity is right today. Right. <laughs> It'd be but, much but better Jesus, if Jesus yeah. was around. <laughs> yeah. And so anyway, so that I, I sort of, and so that, but, but once I sort of like, I felt like I discovered it and I started connecting. Well, then I suddenly I'm telling people like, Oh yeah, that, that's like this other book, this guy wrote, and you should read this. Wow. And I'm like, I'm oh, finding out that, Oh, I didn't invent this. Man. <laughs> but I feel like I, I discovered it on my own. Right. So, yeah. um, and that to say, here's what gives, I think, the reason why I mentioned that is that the fact that I could see it means it's there. Mm. Like it's, it is something to be discovered in the scriptures where it's from Jesus, from Paul, from the, from the, the other writings in the New Testament. Like there's plenty of reason to believe that, right. again, like you said, the, the expectation for the return of Christ, second coming, whatever, um, that over time, it suddenly became a, a revelation or understanding that, oh, wait a second, Jesus is here. Mm. He's on earth right now because he's alive in you and he's alive in me. And as this little mustard seed of the gospel begins to spread and, and the yeast begins to cover the whole lump of dough, oh, eventually all the world, the kingdoms of the world will be replaced and become the kingdom of our God ah that this is how the kingdom of god comes on earth and then you start reading revelation this is the thing about revelation 21 20 and 21 everything about that new jerusalem picture i just challenge people to go and read it mm. go and read the what what john describes about the new jerusalem the bride of christ he, it's the bride of christ so again we think of new jerusalem as heaven or whatever but it's he says it's the bride of christ which is what the church which is already here 
but it comes down out of heaven and it, but it rests on the earth and then it spreads to cover the earth. And then that's when you get these pictures of, you know, the, this throne in the center of the temple and the living water that flows and the trees, the, the leaves that are from the healing of the nations, which are outside, but they're invited to come in. Like that's a picture, not really of heaven, but of the kingdom on earth, the, the body of Christ on earth, being Christ on earth and inviting everyone else to come in. Like, yeah, I think that kind of actually makes more sense. And so mm -hmm. again, in my book, I'm trying to explain it and, I, and answer the questions because lots of questions come up like, well, what about the second resurrection? And doesn't that mean like, so again, we, we have to answer some other kind of questions uh, going forward from there. But to me, that makes much more sense. And so I don't know that I'm really waiting for the physical Jesus to return to this earth. Um, and, and so, yeah, we, I do try to talk about that a little bit. Like, so then what are we looking forward to, right? If not that, then what is it we're waiting for? Yeah. Do you think that, I mean, there's a point where, right. I mean, of course, the best time to have this conversation is 2020. I mean, what a freaking nightmare this year has been, right? Yes. And so, you know, <laughs> and yeah, if you look at it historically, it's been still pretty good compared to most like of history, before. right? Jeez, yeah. you, did you want to do it in, you know, 500 BC? Would you like to go through a pandemic then? Because <laughs> I guarantee right. it doesn't go well for you. Right. It doesn't go as well as it has gone. Um, and so, you know, it's still we're at probably one of the better pinnacles of time to be alive. But do you think there is a component of just life is pretty shit for a lot of people and and yeah. a lot of that's subjective right so yeah no you're better off than someone 500 bc right you've got a fridge you've got a shop around the corner you've got a car you've got ac life is fairly good you know you've got a fairly yeah. decent living standards you live a lot longer but from your subjective reality stuff still goes wrong your friends you know fall out with you your parents die people get sick like and and there's an element of an a, a paradise awaiting a a moment where everything changes and that every tear gets wiped away and it suddenly becomes all fine yeah. um i don't have to deal with this crap or even all the things that cause this to be crap is going to get punished somehow you know going back to that yeah. like do you think there's this hesitancy in the same way of letting go of that? Like that's, that's a, that's a nice comforting, it's a security blanket in some way, yeah. shape or form. It makes us feel better on, on some level. Yeah. Having that concept. Yeah. But again, you know, going back to the conversation we've had and when you, when you have a conversation about the afterlife and now, okay, well, we don't believe in eternal torment and we don't really think God's a, a torturer or destroyer. We think he's a loving father who heals his children. Okay, so after I die, I believe everyone, good, bad, righteous, whatever, we all pass through the fire. We all go through this refining and restoring thing. We're all reset to our original goodness. And, and we're, now where are we? Where's everybody who's ever lived in all time and space? We're in this place where we are face-to-face -face with the creator of the universe, the God who loves us, the Abba of Christ. And, and so that is, we do look forward to that. And that is the sort of thing we can look forward to. Um, it's just saying that that's where we experience that. Mm. It's not that uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, I'm bored at work and then I hear, doo, 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 I look outside the window. Oh my gosh, Jesus is coming back and he's going to establish all that right here and now. And then, hey, Jesus, you know, I'm going to go check that out. But first I want to go see a movie. Like, right. In yeah. other words, we, we, for some reason, we act like we need that thing that we're saying is going to, where it's going to experience after we're dead. 
that it's not real until it's happening right here mm. on earth in this sort of experiential physical right. reality we're in. And I'm not even saying that, um, that it's never going to be like, we're never going to have a merging of this physical reality with that spiritual reality. I'm not even saying that that's never going to happen because if, if, if we say that we believe that God's ultimate plan for humanity on earth is for the kingdom of God to eventually reach every man, woman, and child to transform the whole planet into people who look like Christ. Then one day, uh, if I believe it's inevitable that one, I don't know, 3000 year something, um, that eventually we're going to hold you it. to that Keith. Gonna yeah, hold you to that date. Set a date in the year 3010. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like at some point yeah. uh, we will get it. I, I hope I have hope for that that in some way this earth will be transformed into the kingdom of Christ mm. in some way. Now, whether that is the spiritual reality that we're translated to after we die or not, or it's different or, you know, that's another conversation. Sure. Do you think there's an element as well of like, I don't like this a few Keith, if I'm honest, because it kind of puts a lot of responsibility on my shoulders. Yes. Right. <laughs> What do, you mean, like what do you mean Jesus isn't going to come back and fix everything? You mean Jesus is in me and I'm going to fix everything? I don't like doing that. That's right. That's a, that's a tough pill to swallow because if I'm honest, I don't feel like I can fix much, right? I mean, I'm lucky if I can record a couple of podcasts a week. I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job. <laughs> like, what right. do you mean solve world hunger, get half of these corrupt world leaders out of all these businesses sure. and governments? And you know what I mean, what do you mean fix starvation and, yeah. you know, all these things like, God, can we not just wait for Jesus to come back and kind of just flick the switch? But the, yeah, the, you're right. That's the thing. But, it, but the danger is if the, the longer we wait, the longer we keep offloading it and waiting, well, then we're going to lose this generation and we're going to lose the next mm. generation. And, and again, scripturally, um, if, if, if we look at, uh, when, when I look at some of these scriptures, like uh, I think it's in first Corinthians, right? Where, where Paul says, or is it Romans? Uh, no, I've already forgotten what it is. Um, but it's the, it's the verse where Paul says, I think it's Romans. It is Romans, where he talks about, um, he says, all creation is groaning. Mm, yeah. Not for the second coming of Christ. All creation is groaning and yearning for what? For the sons and daughters of God. That's us. To, to be revealed, to wake up, to step into our calling as the people who are empowered and filled with the, you know, we are the incarnation of Christ in the world. We are his hands. We are his feet. Whatever we're doing is what Christ is doing in the world mm. right now. And so, you know, if we don't wake up and get that, if we don't step into our identity and our calling as the body of Christ, you know, creation and, and Christ, he's waiting for us yeah. to wake up and fix it. But as long as we sit around waiting for Jesus to come back and fix it, well, then we're just spinning our wheels. You know, yeah. there's no hope for anything. Yeah. And this is something that fascinates me about this. So I'm listening to this. I'm also aware that a good portion of my popu uh, population, my, my audience, the people listening to this are probably um, somewhat, if not completely disconnected from a lot of Christian language. In fact, probably repulsed by a lot of Christian language. Yes. And so hearing this and going, God, this is so exclusive. Oh, the, the church on earth will, you know, reveal right. God and we'll, we'll be like, oh, yes. why don't you come and join us? I'll be like, and it's like, yeah. oh God, that's so elitist. So, so. But the thing is, if, if you can disconnect from that on some level and engage with it on that mythological level where this is an ideological um, persuasion that explains that 
there are those on the earth who wake up to the reality that they have divinity within, that they have yes. everything within to, to find love and acceptance for themselves, to love their neighbor, to, to love their enemies, to transform the world, yes. to make it this beautiful place that will be restored and redeemed and make this world a place that is a paradise. Um, yes. Whether you engage with the texts that inform that or whatever, or you give them authority sure. or whether you like the word Christ or God or whatever, right. I right. think there's a profound beauty to employing these concepts of restorative justice, of loving your enemy yeah. and your neighbor, um, of awakening to find love within yourself and, 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 and um, profound depth within yourself, whatever that might be, the universe, divinity, God, Christ, whatever yeah. languages you put to it. Um, it's it's a profound message, I mean, and, and to look at it coming from um, a bunch of Jewish converts two thousand years ago is right. incredibly ahead of its time as well in a lot of ways. Now, that's yes. not to say that you know maybe some people even before Christ, Buddha and, and such, were were playing with these ideas and trying to put forward a lot of these um, beautiful, peaceful, um, uh, mindful concepts you know i'm not trying to claim exclusivity as either yeah, yeah, yeah. um but it is amazing that these people like paul and peter and especially when you know some of paul and peter's past you're like damn yeah. these guys had profound radical shifts to be presenting yes. this concept um yeah. of an awakened christ within um yes. a beautiful yeah, reality see, I, within. It's, it's so funny because phil like i think you and i get this like if you really grasp what we're saying i it's a i, I think it's an extremely hopeful message it's but, but sometimes I've talked to people about this and like, oh, Keith, that sounds like such a bummer. Um, and like, why? Why do you think it's a bummer? I think it's the most hopeful message you could possibly have, that we have the ability right now. We could end most of the suffering on the planet. We could end war. We could end famine. We can do this. The message is that God is, is, is cheering us on. God is saying, go for it. You can do it. I, I've empowered you. I've filled you. I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. I want you to do it. I expect you to do it. I'm going to help you do it. I want to give you vision to do it. And you can do it. If you all work mm. together, if you all believe it, and if you want it bad enough, you can do these things and make this world an amazing place. And you're not waiting for Jesus to show up and snap his fingers and do it. You can do it. And we're invited to step into that and live in that and walk in that. And I'm like, and you think that's a depressing message? I, right. I don't know. I don't know why you, why that gets translated sometimes as like a bummer. Like, how is that a bummer? I don't understand. Again, unless again, it's just like, I don't want to be the one to do it. Like I, I have to do that. I don't, I don't want to do that. It's, it's tough, isn't it? Because you yeah. it's amazing because to me, I don't know any human being that doesn't, you know, flick open a, an article on Facebook or on Twitter or um, or see in the news or whatever, like um, this person who grew up in a hard rural place in Africa and taught himself about electronics and built a windmill. I'm describing a movie right now, um, you know, and, and gave power to his neighborhoods and, um, and, you know, and then moved away and got like a degree um, and then came back and started, you know, you read stories or you see a movie or you, you know, you read an article or whatever and you go, that, that is what life is about. I want yeah. to do something like that. I want to change. Like it's hard to, for any human to read. It. Maybe if, if you're particularly self-deprivating and, and are, um, <laughs> have as little self-compassion as I do, maybe you read, Oh God, I, those people just make me feel like crap. But, <laughs> but at least you still go, God, that that is what's about though. That's what we should be doing. That's what, you know, no one reads the story of, um, 
you know, people that victimize entire neighborhoods or, um, or, you know, no one's reading Saddam Hussein's autobiography going, gosh, that's what life's about. That's the way to live a good yeah. life. Like maybe a sociopath or two maybe do, I don't know. But generally speaking, we connect with that, that thing that, that we're describing, this thing of yeah. a person fully embodied by love going, how mm. can I bring something of, of what is good and right and justice and, and, yeah. and restoration and healing into this world. And it, yeah. it does pull us, whether we, whether we feel that drag of like, Oh God, it sounds like hard work or <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just not good enough to do it. Or, you know, right. why, how would I ever do something? We, we might have some barriers, but we all feel that tug. I, I really I believe so. that. I, I, yeah. I I hope so as well. Maybe I'm being a bit optimistic. I'm not known to be optimistic. Yeah, I'm uh, not either. But, but see, uh... <laughs> you know what I mean? That, I think that what you just described, you know, I think maybe that's our only hope. Because like I said at the beginning, you know, when when we have this version of the end times, this dispensational futurist idea, and there's dragons and all these creatures and blah, blah, blah. And then like, you take that away. Uh, what can you replace it with? Well, I think, again, like you said, maybe the, maybe the story we replace it with is the, is the story and the concept and the idea that you, you, you and me, like we are invited to step into, like we get to be the Luke Skywalker. We get to be the Aragorn. We get to be the Frodo who, who goes and, you know, takes the ring to Mordor and makes this massive and oh, destroy the forces of darkness and, and, you know, bring light and, and, you know, to the universe. Like, I mean, to be invited into that kind of a story, that's even, to me, that's what's better. That's, that's a better story. That's than, exciting. Yeah. That's a better story than yeah. dragons and, well, and the thing is, we find that the dragon is malaria and we take it out. Or we find yeah. that the dragon is a, a corrupt government and we run for local yeah. office and we start working our way up and we overthrow <laughs> it somehow. I, I don't right. know, but, but this is, it's still the, if you can again engage with these concepts of these mythological concepts, you know, um, they're the same stories that we all run through one way or another. Yes. There's, maybe yeah. there's no dragons, there's no swords, sorry. Maybe for the Americans, it's <laughs> guns. Um, but there are dragons to overcome. There is a way to be the yes. hero. And, and, and maybe that's the most selfish motivation that we can start with is I want to be a hero. <laughs> but yeah, maybe. maybe it's better to at least start with the bad motivation and move towards the good one. I don't know if you can't do the good motivation yet. Try and be a hero. I mean, that just sounds like a good move anyway. But, but see, it's also like, it's also not this individualistic thing. It's not, I'm not going to do it by myself, right? It's sort of us together. It's, it's yeah. the... Again, it's what all creation is longing for is for the children of God to be revealed. Like, so it's, yeah. it's all of us. It's collective. So it's a collective consciousness and awareness and uh, understanding of who we are. Like, we're part of this army of, of people, like, or you want to say it this way, like, we're like, it's almost like the matrix. We're the subversive agents within, you know, this, the culture that we are, we're under the radar, but we're subversively looking to change and, and bring, you know, to bring down the empire and to, establish this new kingdom from within like it's more like that like we're operatives if you want to think of it that way we're agents of change within a system and so it's not one of us you know you're not neo but we're part of like a system that it, from within that's going to eventually bring about this change um and again it's that collectiveness a community side of it as well mm. 
That's beautiful. I honestly think it is a much more, I haven't read much um, that I've come across where they talk about a second coming of Christ in that concept. It's just something that I've thought yeah. along the way. Maybe I saw it from someone at some point. I don't know. Um, I'll but, send you the book, by the way. I realized I should have sent you the book in advance of this interview. I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I probably wouldn't have time to read it. I'm <laughs> rubbish true. at reading books anyway. But yeah, please do. I'd love to see it. Um, but we should probably wrap up because we're, we're about two, two ten. Not bad. Yeah, Not yeah. bad. Um, but uh I, I've just realized I've been yawning and I, I'm actually very engaged and awake, but okay. my body is, is yawning. And so I, I, I'm, I don't want to be that's too okay. rude, but that's why I've covered my mouth and my eyes are bulging <laughs> occasionally. Um, also because, wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> the yawn. Um, so, but I want to, I want to ask, okay. So first of all, your book is coming out 25th of August, right? Yes. Yes. So it is. What, what day is that? Do you know? Uh, that is a uh, Tuesday. Okay, great. So my podcast comes out Mondays and uh, Friday, uh, Thursdays. So we can either do two days after or a day before. But sure, yeah, yeah. So either the book is going to come out tomorrow, or it will already be out two days ago um, by the time people hear it. And it's called. It's called Jesus Unexpected: Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming. Dude, you are on it with titles. Every time I'm like, what's he going to come up? How's he going to do the Jesus? Uh, how's, how's he going to give us a list of your books? Because I, I mean, first of all, you are yeah. prolific. But yeah, this is my fifth book in the Jesus Un series. Yeah. So Jesus Untangled, Crucifying Our Politics, The Pledge of Allegiance to the Lamb. Then Jesus Unbound, Liberating the Word of God from the Bible. Jesus Unveiled, Forsaking Churches We Know It for Ecclesia as God Intended. Jesus Undefeated. Um, um oh what is it i just forgot it <laughs> i was impressed i was like you're doing well here <laughs> i was i was doing so well it's right in front of me uh condemning the false doctrine of eternal torment nice. yeah and then the new one jesus unexpected ending the end times to become the second coming that's awesome i i am impressed i i'm always like okay well you do, do you do you work from the title back <laughs> not right gotta no, get some un whatever <laughs> you're working your way jesus through a dictionary un. with the uns <laughs> yeah, yeah i've got the jesus un part of it but usually the subtitle comes at the at the very right. end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. So, I, I mean, for people that want to dive into this, this is, I mean, a go-to uh, resource to kind of educate. I mean, I'm sure people listening going, wow, I want to know more about Because we just touched on little bits. I mean, yeah. there's so much in there. And, I mean, from the history perspective um, of how the kind of modern kind of theology kind of came about, from the history perspective of what the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, that kind of stuff, yeah. from the individual Bible verses. I know a lot of people can get hung up on that. Um, yeah. and, and then even the, okay, so philosophically, like, how does this play out in who am I, what does this mm -hmm. do to me and, and my culture? And, and so there's so many areas that, I mean, yeah. we could have stayed in one of those for hours probably. Easy, um, yeah. and so, yeah, I, I'd encourage people to check that out. Um, for anyone that doesn't know who you are, they missed your last podcast. If not come across you on the web, how do they connect with you? What's your best places for people to connect? Yeah, so I blog at Pathios. Um, you can, you know, it's just my name, KeithGiles.com. And um, I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, mainly. And I have a podcast called the Heretic Happy Hour Podcast uh, that I do with a couple other guys and girls. Uh, one girl and two other guys. It's grown since last time, right? It, it shuffled around? Yeah, yeah. So Jamal um, was one of our founding members. He he walked away, you know, good terms. Yeah, just, yeah. He, he needed to move on his decision. And so we added Derek Day and Katie Valentine, Dr. Nice. Katie Valentine. She's phenomenal. I've and not so come across Katie. Oh, um, they're both. I, yeah, they're I should both check her out. I had um, Derek on a couple of weeks ago, but I mean, I, I've known Derek oh, yeah. for 
gosh, probably more than 10 years now. He's so an interesting guy. I love he's him. He's a legend. I love him. <laughs> so is. that's cool. That's, that's, that's a good mix. That's a good mix. It must get, yep. man, that's a lot of people. Do you all go on at the same time when you have your discussions on, or do you mix it up? Who's going to be on each podcast? No, no, it's all four of us co-hosting. And yeah, Matthew, Matthew DiStefano, of course, I don't want to leave him out. He's yeah. awesome. He's a great guy. Amazing guy. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, we get on the Zencaster and, um, it's, it's kind of, we're, you know, we're learning our rhythm because it took mm. us like almost three years. Um, me and Matt and Jamal, we, we learned a good rhythm between the three of us, but now that we've lost Jamal, we've added two new people. We, we have to learn refine that groove. That rhythm. Yeah. You don't want to over talk and you want to let everybody else talk, but you also don't want it to, you want to keep that balloon in the air, you know, yeah. to keep the energy going. So we're, we're, we're it, I think we're doing pretty good considering we've only been going, I think like four or five episodes. Wow. Yeah. That's a major shift. That's awesome though. I mean, I've, listened, I've only listened to a few of your podcasts again. I just, man, I do not consume content. I don't read much. No, I don't, I, I don't really. listen to, podcasts. I just don't have time. Um, yeah. but the, the few I have, I, I really enjoy it. Um, just fantastic. I listened to the one you had, um, the most recent one I listened to that really grabbed my attention because I've been wanting to dive into it is, um, with Steve McVeigh. Um, oh, cause yeah. I, I want to look at more, I've got a couple of books I'm trying to wade through on quantum mechanics. Um, yeah. Um, just purely quantum mechanics. I don't want to muddy it with like, oh, here's a Christian perspective of how right. you should read yes. it and interpret it. I'm like, okay, no, give me the data. Then I'll allow you to tell me how to yes. read it. A bit like, you know, here's dispensationalism. Now let's look at the Bible. I'm like, well, right. maybe we should do this the right way around. Um, and yeah. so that was fantastic. It was a great, great episode. Um, yeah, I liked that. Steve was great. That was a, my, one of my favorites too. I loved it. Okay, nice. Yeah, but I, I was so impressed by how much you guys knew your stuff. Right. It felt like you guys recent. Do you, how often is your podcast? Once a week? Well, we run it. It, it, it publishes every other week. Right. Um, but we're, we have tons of stuff in the bank. Like we're, we're yeah. like a month or more ahead of nice. the publishing schedule. That's the way we to try it. to do that. I mean, we've always tried to do our homework ahead of time, you know, so that when we get on, we do sound like we know, we understand the topic. Right. And we're not like, but that's a lot. That's a lot of homework, right? I mean, if you've got, yeah. okay, this week, we're going to talk to this guy. We need to like, you know, who's going to read that book or who's right. going to listen to a few podcasters. That sounds yeah. like a lot of work. So I'm always impressed by stuff like that. And you do yeah. sound like you really, I, I often have people on and go, I think with our first podcast, I was like, Keith, I'm going to be honest. I've seen your name everywhere. I've not once checked you out. Yeah. I'm really sorry. <laughs> Tell me about yourself. And so like, I, I'm very guilty of that. So I'm always impressed when I come across people that um, are just like, I'm on it. I know it. Right. Um, yeah. It makes for a good podcast for sure. But uh, yeah, yeah. so people should check it out on Facebook, Twitter, um, and then your Pathios, your website, Heretic Happy Hour. That yep. should uh, give them a good grasp. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. And then, you know, if you want to check out my books, they're on Amazon, um, Kindle, print, and audiobook, depending on. You know, oh, nice. Do you, do you read them yourself? What do you mean? Do you read the audio? Oh no, the audio. No, it's just too much trouble. The it's technically it's um it's way it's a lot too of work. difficult. It's not just like setting up my microphone and my computer. It's it, there's way too much technical stuff. Right. But um, I I found a guy. So my last three audiobooks have been all been narrated by this guy Eric Morrison, and I love him. I think he's great. And um and I've heard some people also have said they like him a lot. Nice. So I, I like his voice. I like the way he reads. He brings me to tears sometimes. I've listened to some of the some of the recordings because i get i have to proof them before they publish you know right yeah and i'll hear him reading my words and i'm like did i write that wow he just <laughs> makes me sound so much better i'm like i wow i gotta go back and check that design that so yeah i really like the audiobooks i like the way he does that so. yeah oh that's great that's good i'm always fascinated by that component um 
yeah of people that choose to read their own stuff or don't but i feel like if i hadn't if i hadn't heard you and built a bit of connection with you i wouldn't mind but once i've heard people a lot like i've read a lot of this uh, I've, I've watched a lot of their youtube videos yeah. or something i'm like you hear their voice you're not keith imposter <laughs> <Right>. imposter <laughs> you know that's not keith. yeah <laughs> yeah that's funny awesome well keith thank you so 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 much for coming on i, I really enjoyed yeah. it um so awesome. I, i'm glad to have you back on it's been a couple months so you're 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 gearing up to be a regular so and i'm yeah, very well, pleased so the way you time, bash so. out your your books you know we'll get you back on again for sure next uh, book and we'll go into depth on that but we could probably do a backlog and work through some of your old ones so <laughs> they all go. sound yeah, so yeah. fascinating um so yeah great topics to, to dive it's into tough. It was a privilege. Right, to have Phil, you thank on. you, man. God bless. I appreciate yeah. it so much. Love you, man. Catch you later. Love you too. Bye bye. All right. So that was Keith Giles. Now, Keith's new book is out today. I managed to time it right. Uh, it's called Jesus Unexpected Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming. And I really recommend you check it out. Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation um, and kind of think, gosh, I wish I could go a bit deeper into all that, then that's the book for you. I'm sure there's plenty of other books that talk about the end times, but um, Keith has really done his homework here. He's, he's put it in a, in a beautiful way, um, the concept of becoming the second coming of Christ uh, as, as a body of people, as, as humanity. Um, that's a beautiful picture to me. And so, yeah, I do recommend you go check it out. I'll put a link in the in the show notes, obviously. Um, as always, check out his other stuff as well. He's on Patheos. He's writing uh, KeithGiles.com. Uh, his podcast, The Happy Heret uh, Heretic Happy Hour, um, on his Facebook, Twitter. Um, you know the deal. And he's got lots of other books over there on Amazon as well. Um, and so do check out Keith. I'll put links to all of those resources in the show notes um, so you can find them easily. Um, shoot him a message. Let him know you loved this podcast. That's always uh, good, uh, you know, for people to know that they that, that coming on the podcast was worth their time uh, and that people listen to it. Um, but yeah, that was Keith. I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, we're going to be next week going back into our regular two a week uh, schedule. I'm trying to think who we have. We have, um, who have we got? Oh, yes, we have Chris from the Instagram account Science Jesus Memes talking about science and evolution and all sorts of good stuff. And we have Kevin Garcia, um, who is uh, a very eclectic person, an online digital pastor. Um, they are into... Uh, witchcraft and tarot reading and yet they still consider themselves to be um, Christian and so that's going to be a fantastic conversation very interesting conversation as well um, and so yeah do keep an eye out for those um, until then that's all I've got for you if you want to dive into more stuff you know where to look the podcast there's the grace course for more uh, teaching um, stuff the deconstruction network if you're deconstructing and you feel alone in that journey of deconstruction and you want to try and find some people that are deconstructing in your local area that's the place for you the deconstruction network all right love you everyone I'll see you next week